With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you talk about my family. I'll talk about your family. Listen, for years, people going around saying, black is beautiful. They took one look at your family and said, hold everything. <laughs> Same with, uh, you couldn't go to a Mexican restaurant if it was owned by Mexicans, okay? Because, again, you'd be seen as giving your business to non-whites. Uh, you couldn't, uh, you wasn't supposed to watch black television shows. They wasn't allowed. Uh, I was a closet Sanford and Son watcher. Hmm. I used to watch Sanford and Son when I was, uh, I, I loved Red Fox and, and stuff, even when I was in the Klan. And, but I didn't let the Klan know that I watched it. Okay, uh, I, I used to watch Sherman Helmsley of the Jeffersons. Uh, I okay. used to watch the Jeffersons. And, uh, as a matter of fact, Sherman Helmsley and I met. We became, uh, we, we, we shared the same dressing room, uh, out in California for a TV show we did many years ago after I got out of the clan. Mm. Uh, and I was telling him about that and he was cracking up laughing about it, you know, but, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I watched all those shows in private. Okay, but I didn't let the clan know. Tell her what you told me yesterday, and then she got something to tell you. Now, listen to this, Esther. Go on, I'm all ears. No, you're not. You're all mouth, but listen to this. <laughs> well, it's very simple. Lamont Sanford is my son. What did you say, nigga? <laughs> Wow, you know, that was, uh, I was listening to the, I had heard the clip earlier uh, before the program, and I listened to it again, and uh, in, in my city, Sanford and Sons comes on at least five times a week uh, as reruns, so uh, all I can say is it's, uh, it's psychological warfare, they, uh, they don't have to fire any bullets, all they have to do is, is uh, create programming. Uh, on the television, on the DVD, at the theater, at the comedy club, on cable TV, whatever, uh, music. So that has become where, the, where the, the most intense war is being fought, right there under the guise of entertainment. And comedy has just, just become one of the biggest Trojan horses to get black people to degrade themselves, call it humor, and devastate ourselves psychologically. I mean, what kind of respect do a people have for themselves who ridicule everything that they are, who ridicule the way that they look and ridicule their own history, their own ancestors, their own churches? I mean, what kind of respect could we possibly say collectively that we have for ourselves as we do that? 
Norman Lear was the visionary producer behind classic TV sitcoms such as All in the Family and The Jeffersons. A spokesman for his family says he died of natural causes at the age of 101. Lear's hit TV comedies drew humor from controversial social issues. In this moment from All in the Family, the bigoted patriarch Archie Bunker talked about racial integration with one of Bunker's heroes, Sammy Davis Jr. If God had meant us to be together, he'd have put us together. Well, look what he'd done. He put you over in Africa, he put the rest of us in all the white countries. Well, you must have told him where we were because somebody came and got it. Here to talk about Lear's legacy is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hey, Eric. Hi. You have said that almost every modern TV show you watch today owes a debt to Norman Lear. Explain how his legacy goes beyond just creating a lot of successful shows. Sure. Well, let's talk uh, first. Lear got his start in show business as a writer, so he worked with people like Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. But by 1971, when he was almost 50, he heard about this British TV comedy called Death Till Death Do Us Part, and it featured a white, reactionary, working-class guy who was racist and sexist and head of his family. Lear decided to create an American version of the show centered on Archie Bunker, a working-class guy who could be racist and sexist, but his family still loved him. Now, Lear said aspects of Archie were inspired by his own father, Archie's casual racism led to a moment when he talked to a black man about the race of God, and we've got a clip. Let's listen. Well, I mean, uh, you know, God is white, ain't he? What makes you think God isn't black? Well, because I was made in God's image, and you'll note that I ain't black. Well, don't complain to me about it. <laughs> So you can see how the show was undercutting Archie while showing him expressing views that a lot of white people had at that time. And in the context of TV in that time, why was this so groundbreaking? Well, before the early 1970s, TV executives always insisted that people watch shows, especially comedies, for escapism. They wanted to get away from their daily problems. And Lear was part of this generation of TV producers who proved that people would watch characters talking about what was happening in the real world. So All in the Family had an episode where Edith Bunker was sexually assaulted. In 1972, he helped develop another British TV show, Into Sanford and Son, which was about a black junkyard owner and his son in South Central Los Angeles. And a spin off series in 1972 featuring Edith's cousin Maude featured the character deciding to have an abortion and they were very popular. So we've got a clip of Maude telling her best friend that she's pregnant at almost 50 years of age. Vivian at age 62, I'll be the mother of an eagle scout. (laughs) No, they made a mistake. Laboratories make mistakes. There's no mistake, Vivian. The rabbit died. (laughs) (laughs) Laughing, no doubt. And in an interview with the Archive of American Television, Lear himself said the choice for her to have an abortion felt inescapable. The scene in which Maud tells her close friend uh, that she's pregnant, when we went deep into it and explored all of the things we might have done, anything but facing what about this almost 50-year-old woman having a baby. And it just wasn't in our nature by that time to wish to take the easy way. Hmm. Eric, Lear also pioneered a lot of elements of modern television that we take for granted today. What were some of those? 
While he helped innovate the idea of taking popular characters from a successful show and spinning them off into their own series, so he developed The Jeffersons to feature a black couple who once lived next to the bunkers. He also created TV that elevated anti-heroes, so in shows like All of the Family and Jeffersons, the starring male characters were often bigoted and stubborn, but they were also charismatic and lovable, like Tony Soprano or the characters from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Well, after we learned of Lear's death, a lot of modern TV producers today have been posting about how inspired they were by him. People from late-night host Jimmy Kimmel to Abbott Elementary creator Quinta Brunson. What was his impact outside of his own shows? Well, he founded a group called People for the American Way, which helped with voter registration and opposed religious conservatism and politics. He mentored people in show business. I interviewed him once about the support he gave to Ryan Murphy, who created Glee, an American Horror Story. Jimmy Kimmel created several recent specials featuring live renditions of scripts from shows like All in the Family and the Jeffersons. And, you know, today we're going to have five major TV networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, and the CW, present a small visual tribute to him at 8 p.m. Well, when you interviewed him, what was he like as a person? Well, I interviewed him for a public talk at the Smithsonian in 2016 that was timed to reference his memoir. It was just before his 94th birthday. He was approachable and had this enthusiasm for life that seemed to keep him vital. Uh, And, you know, it was a lesson for all of us that, you know, this guy kept teaching us right up until he left us. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins speaking about the legacy of pioneering TV producer Norman Lear. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. National Cathedral here in Washington, some new stained glass windows were installed a few months ago. They depict scenes of people marching for racial justice. I think that the American story is is such a bright story, but I think that sometimes we're not honest about our history. Lamoris and his wife Carmela Perry visited the cathedral from Chicago this week. They gazed up at the windows created by the artist Carrie James Marshall. Where images of Confederate generals used to glow, there are now depictions of protesters holding signs that say fairness and no foul play. When you honor people from the Confederate era, it makes other people feel excluded. And I think that's what's not emphasized. And it's very divisive and exclusive. So I honor and love what they have done by trying to be more inclusive. And I think in doing a project like this, we're trying to acknowledge everyone. The cathedral's dean first called to remove the windows with Confederate imagery in 2015 after the mass shooting at a black church in Charleston. The funding for this was part of a larger project by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, which we'll note is also an NPR sponsor. Elizabeth Alexander is the foundation president. I think that when you look at that window, even if you don't know the history of what was there before, you see scenes of people moving collectively and demanding that they be treated fairly. Marching in the great tradition of marching in the United States to say that 
we are a we, first of all. So I think the fact that it's collective is, is, is super important. Uh, and that we are always perfecting ourselves as a whole. What I hope they will have noticed from this one is that because of a lot of the white space, it lets in a great deal of light. And I would take that literal light to be metaphorical, to be about illuminating uh, greater goods. The Mellon Foundation just announced that it is doubling its financial commitment to the Monuments Project from 250 to $500 million over five years. Those windows in the National Cathedral underscore how this project is changing who we valorize and how. Here in Washington, you can visit lots of monuments that are an imposing, solid homage to one man. These windows are none of those things. They're fragile. They are about a collective. They're transparent. Elizabeth Alexander told me the first thing her foundation did when it started this project in 2020 was commission a national survey of monuments. Over half of our monuments in the United States are to men who owned other human beings. Hmm. Enslavers. Enslavers, yes. There were so many surprises. Um, uh, one of them is that, and most of them in the category of things were even worse than I imagined. Hmm. For example, uh, women were more likely to be represented as fictional characters or mermaids than as uh, actual women who lived in time and uh, were actors. You mean uh, if you take the monuments to women, more than 50% of them were fictional? Were fictional, yes. And if you think about just um, very familiar examples, if you go into Central Park until very, very recently, there's now a monument that we've helped support to uh, the women's suffrage movement. But before that, you would find Alice in Wonderland. Um, and that's in New York City's Central Park. So you can sort of extrapolate it from there. If you look at the representations of stories that tell the histories of, of people of color, it dwindles in Native American stories, Latinx stories, Asian American stories to below 1%. When you launched this project in 2020, it felt like the entire country was engaged in this debate over monuments. Three years later, how would you describe where the country is right now? With these 80 monuments that we've helped support and others, there's just more learning about our various stories. And so I think about um, something like, uh, you know, the relocation of the, the sacred stone to the Kaw people in Lawrence, Kansas. And that's a project that's very, very close to my heart and also gives an example of another form of a monument. They, uh, the Kaw Native people, had a 25-ton glacial erratic stone, uh, a mount of deeply spiritual and long-held cultural significance to the Kaw Nation. And 75 years ago, as part of the state's anniversary and in commemoration to the pioneers of Kansas, the white people of Lawrence, Kansas, or some white people of Lawrence, Kansas, literally moved that 25-ton rock to the center of Lawrence and put a, a caption on it, Our Settler Heritage. Mm. So before folks ever came to us, the people of the town, white people, Native people in the area, people at the University of Kansas did deep restitution work together where they wanted to tell the truth of the history. They wanted to move the stone back. And so that is the point where, where, where we engage with people after communities have decided 
this is what we want to commemorate, or this has done harm. And the resources and $5 million uh, is what it takes uh, to do all that surrounds moving a 25-ton glacial rock back to its original sacred context with the people who imbued it with so much spirit and meaning. And you said that particular monument is especially important to you. Why is that? Because I think the poetics of restitution, when you see it really happening, are so moving. Human beings carry their stories with them. They carry the stories of their people. They carry the stories of their histories. And sometimes circumstances mean that more folks don't get to hear those stories or see them marked in a way that everyone can share. And yet, families and communities don't ever let that history go. And so the idea that with no reasonable hope of being able to somehow move that stone back, that it's finally happening, I think is a testament to um, not only the people who carried their history for that long, but also to the power of doing the hard work of reconciliation and doing it in public. So you began this process with a survey of the nation's monuments. And if you are to do another survey five years from now, after the $500 million has been spent, what do you hope it shows? At the end of this, I hope that the work goes on with Mellon or with others, because the work of telling stories in public places is eternal work. And so my hope is that we've just widened the aperture and that the work continues in a way that that recognizes us in all of our in our our power and beauty. And just on a numbers level, I I assume you want more than half of the monuments about women to be real women rather than fictional ones. <laughs> well, yes. Now I like fiction, I, so <laughs> I, I I do think that you know people who are powerful characters created by artists who write. <laughs> the Little very- Mermaid is all well and good, but. <laughs> but let's not uh, leave all of those other stories to the side. That is poet and president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, Elizabeth Alexander. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ari. This was a great pleasure. Talking about how Mandela. How they love Mandela. Ten years ago today, the world lost one of its towering moral and political figures, Nelson Mandela, who died at the age of 95. For a time, he was the world's most famous political prisoner who would go on to become president of South Africa and a Nobel Peace Prize winner. NPR's Ashley Montgomery looked back at some of the moments that made Mandela a human rights icon. It's April 20th, 1964, in Pretoria, the capital of South Africa. A 45-year-old activist named Nelson Mandela stands before a court and delivers an impassioned speech about a brutal system of legalized racism. Whites tend to regard Africans as a separate breed. This is apartheid South Africa, where the white minority dominates every aspect of life through systematic discrimination against the black majority. Mandela was a part of the African National Congress, a leading group that advocated for black rights. It's considered the oldest liberation movement in Africa, and Mandela was a member of its armed wing. He was arrested in 1962 and charged with sabotage and conspiracy to overthrow the state. The Ravonia trial speech was part of his defense. Africans want to be paid a living wage 
Mandela speaks for nearly four hours about the harsh restrictions of living under apartheid. It's these words in this courtroom that help solidify Nelson Mandela as the most prominent figure of the anti-apartheid movement. His most famous line comes at the very end. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. Less than two months after his speech, Mandela is convicted and sent to Robben Island Prison off Cape Town. He's sentenced to life and becomes the most famous political prisoner in the world. For years, he's kept in a tiny seven-foot by nine-foot jail cell, an area smaller than a parking space. He does hard labor by day, crushing stones into gravel in a limestone quarry. Mandela writes letters about civil disobedience and pursues a University of London degree. The white government does not allow photos of Mandela or recordings of his voice. Yet his stature continues to grow while he remains behind bars. Finally, in 1990, Mandela is freed after 27 years in prison. I greet you all in the name of peace, democracy, and freedom for Mandela gives his first public address just hours after he is freed. He stands on the balcony of Cape Town's City Hall looking over a jam-packed crowd of over 100,000 Black South Africans. Mandela's hair is graying, and he's wearing his wife's large, oversized reading glasses because he accidentally left his behind at the prison. We have waited too long for our freedom. In addition to Mandela's release, the white government announces a package of reforms that include lifting the ban on the African National Congress and other black groups. Mandela leads the negotiations with the government, and the pillars of apartheid begin to crumble. Finally, in 1994, South Africa holds its first democratic election. NPR covered the news. Nelson Mandela is now the president of South Africa. Nelson Mandela was sworn in as president of South Africa today. The country's first black president. Welcome our brand new state president, Nelson Mandela. He supports social and economic equality and immediately restores the country's international standing. This is from Mandela's inaugural address. The sun shall never set on so glorious a human achievement. Let freedom reign. God bless Africa. I thank you. Today, there's still a wide economic gap between black and white South Africans. And the country has one of the highest youth unemployment rates in the world. Many South Africans still turn to Mandela's message. In his final presidential address to the South African Parliament in March 1999, Mandela reflects on his country's fight for racial justice and reconciliation. I am the product of the people of the world who have cherished the vision of a better life for all people everywhere. Ashley Montgomery, NPR News. And today we're going to talk about 
seven reasons why you might not want to move to New Zealand. In New Zealand this week, thousands of indigenous Maori took to the streets in protest. They've been voicing their disapproval of the new conservative government's plans to review a treaty that was signed by the British colonists and Maori chiefs almost 200 years ago. The government has also pledged to close the Maori Health Authority, curb the use of Maori language in government organizations, and has proposed other policy changes. New Zealand Prime Minister Christopher Luxon says the reason for all of these changes is because he claims voters want services to be based on need and not race. Well, here to talk about why Maori people are protesting is Claire Charters, a professor of law at the University of Auckland, specializing in indigenous people's rights. She also sits on the New Zealand Human Rights Commission as the tribally appointed partner. Welcome. Thank you. So I want to start with the treaty I just mentioned. It's called the Treaty of Waitangi. Can you just briefly explain what this treaty was and why Maori are upset that the government is even planning to review it? The Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840 between Māori chiefs and the British Crown. And under it, Māori uh, retain our sovereignty or self-determination and also the protection of our lands, uh, territories um, and other resources and other things that are precious to us, including language and cultural rights. So what the government is trying to do is to reinterpret what the treaty means. So what are some specific policies that the new government wants to reverse, policies that have been meant to address inequities facing Maori people? Quite worryingly, the government is proposing to abolish what is a Maori academic, I guess, quota for Maori into medical schools. So it is really worryingly, at least to me, that the government would go in and undermine and undercut university policy that is consistent with our Bill of Rights Act, our human rights uh, legislation has been there for some time, has not even gone even close to addressing the inequality in the number of Māori doctors that we have compared to non-Māori doctors. So it's really worrying to me that the government is is going in to legislatively override a university policy to try and get some equality and equity in our hospitals and in all our medical profession. So the Prime Minister says that programs and services should not be based on race. Now, obviously, you and other Maori disagree with that. Can we just step back for a moment and talk about what are the systemic inequities in New Zealand mm -hmm. that you still see disproportionately affecting Maori people there? Like, what is the argument for preserving certain programs that are based on race? So Māori sit on the bottom of virtually every socioeconomic indicia that, that we find in Aotearoa in New Zealand. So be it poverty, be it housing, be it health, be it education, our life expectancy is much lower. 63% um, of the women's uh, prison population is, is made up of Māori. So we sit at the bottom of all these indicia, um, socioeconomic indicia, um, including incarceration. There's clearly a relationship between this and uh, the impact of colonisation, the so-called loss of uh, land very quickly. Māori own very little of land, um, well under 5% in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So there's a very strong correlation between these sort of socioeconomic factors in indicia and the experience of colonisation. 
Now, that would suggest that certainly being Māori is something that you should take into account when trying to achieve um, equity and equality. What the government is proposing currently is something very different, namely that those factors of um, being Indigenous are irrelevant. And so that's really problematic, and it's shown to be historically not to work. That is Claire Charters of the University of Auckland. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Rum and Coca-Cola. Rum and Coca-Cola. Our next story will make you rethink your drink. Thanks to the World Health Organization, it is calling on governments across the world, urging them to increase taxes on two kinds of drinks. Alcohol and sugary beverages. This includes carbonated energy and fruit drinks. And no, the WHO is not a temperance reformer cult, nor is it campaigning for a farce shortcut. So why does it want governments to raise taxes? We'll tell you, but first, let's address the elephant in the room. Do taxes even reduce consumption? Research has an unequivocal answer, yes. We saw this with tobacco taxes. They obviously increased revenue for the government, but they also had health benefits. Higher prices pushed down cigarette sales. Research says the same will apply to beverage taxes. Higher taxation will reduce the consumption of alcohol and sugary drinks. According to a study, if taxes increase alcohol prices by 50%, 21 million deaths can be averted, and about $17 trillion can be generated in additional revenue. $17 trillion. Do you know how much money that is? Take eight of the world's largest economies, their total government revenue for just one year. That's how much. Now, let me give you a practical example. Lithuania raised its alcohol tax in 2017. This increased their alcohol tax revenue, obviously. Also reduced alcohol-related deaths. Similar success applies to taxes on sweetened beverages. Researchers have found that with soda taxes, demand for sugary drinks falls by 20% on average. This happened in Berkeley. In 2014, it passed America's first big soda tax. After three years, people were consuming half the amount of soda and 29% more water. The soda tax raises about $1.5 million every year money that is devoted to health programs there. So the research is quite clear. A higher tax on alcohol and sugary drinks will save lives. Sweetened beverages contribute to 8 million deaths every year due to unhealthy diets. Meanwhile, 2.6 million people die from drinking alcohol every year, which is higher than the annual death toll of HIV AIDS or car crashes or lung cancer. So the logic is quite simple. Two birds with one stone. Higher taxes save lives and bring in money. But today, these dangerous beverages are not taxed enough. The tax rates are based on a fixed volume of beverages. So unless they are periodically increased, they can quickly lose value because of inflation. And that's exactly what is happening. The average global tax rate is too low right now. 108 nations have imposed taxes on sugary drinks. But the average stands at just 6.6% of the price of soda. It is not making a real dent. Now let's look at alcohol. Tax on the price of most sold beer is 17.2%. For spirits, it's a little over 26%, 26.5 actually. In some European nations, wines are tax-free. So things are not really, not really looking good. Yet taxing alcohol and sweetened drinks is a controversial topic. 
a common argument is this. Taxes punish everyone, even those who do not drink excessively. And that is true. But beverage taxes are structured in a way that people who drink responsibly barely feel it. I'll give you an example. Imagine if alcohol tax is increased by 25 cents per drink. With one drink a day, that's about $91 more per year. But if you drink heavily, say 10 drinks a day, that's $910 in one year. So the one who drinks more pays more. Another argument is this. Taxes disproportionately hurt low-income people. Again, this is true too. But they also benefit from it. For instance, in 2014, Mexico passed a nationwide soda tax. Within a year, sugary drink sales fell by 17% in the poorest households, which is good news because the poor are more likely to suffer, both from alcohol-related diseases and soda-related obesity. Out of 2 billion obese people the world over, more than 70% live in low- or middle-income countries. 70%. So no matter how we look at it, for a change... Higher taxes could help. In the U.S., more than 42,000 people died in car crashes last year, and speeding is a big reason. Safety advocates want automakers to adopt new technology in cars to reduce speeding, but not everyone is rushing to make that happen, as NPR's Joel Rose reports. Tiffany May was just a few minutes from home in North Las Vegas when a car came flying into an intersection at more than 100 miles an hour and crashed into hers. She never saw it coming. I remember getting hit, the sound of broken glass. I remember seeing fire, thinking that if I didn't get out, my dog and I were going to die right then. Nine people were killed in the crash in January of last year, including seven family members who were riding together in a minivan. May survived, but the six-vehicle crash changed her life. Nearly two years later, she still uses a cane or a walker. She hasn't given any interviews about the crash until now. I've been dealing with this from um, emotionally, spiritually, physically, cognitively, my entire being. And I'm grieving, like, so many things. Speeding-related crashes accounted for about 12,000 deaths in 2021, more than a quarter of all roadway fatalities, along with hundreds of thousands of injuries. We have a public health crisis, and we have to take action to prevent all of those fatalities and serious injuries. Jennifer Homendy is the chair of the National Transportation Safety Board. The NTSB studied the Las Vegas crash and others and is now calling on U.S. automakers to install what's known as intelligent speed assistance technology in all new cars. We felt it was time to be more aggressive with what we think needs to be done, which is adoption of the technology in vehicles to prevent speeding. The technology can work in a couple of ways. It detects what the speed limit is and then notifies drivers when they're speeding or even potentially forces them to slow down. Nobody has a right to speed. Nobody has a right to break the law. Hamadi says the U.S. lags behind Europe where speed assistance technology is widespread. It is set to become mandatory there for all new cars next year. In the U.S., the NTSB can make recommendations, but it cannot force automakers to add speed assistance. And so far, the U.S. auto industry seems to be in no hurry. So it's not a flat rejection. I think it's a slow adoption. Matt Jones is an auto analyst with TrueCar. He says U.S. automakers may be reluctant to add speed assistance because it would increase the cost of a vehicle for a feature drivers don't necessarily want. From the car makers, there may not be enough consumer sentiment asking for it. 
there may not be enough political pressure asking for it. Federal regulators at the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration are evaluating speed assistance technology, but so far they haven't committed to making it mandatory. In some places, advocates for the technology aren't waiting. New York City is testing speed limiters in its fleet of municipal vehicles. Here's Mayor Eric Adams announcing a pilot program last year. If this is a successful pilot, uh, we want to see this go throughout every vehicle that we are using in our city fleet. A few automakers offer speed assistance technology in passenger cars in the U.S., but American car companies have mostly been quiet about it. The big three all referred our questions to an industry trade group called the Alliance for Automotive Innovation. In a statement, the group said, quote, vehicle technology can play a role, unquote, in improving safety, while emphasizing other policies, including driver education, tougher enforcement, and better infrastructure. Meanwhile, those same automakers routinely use speed as a selling point on television. Put the pedal to the metal. Live fast. That's an ad for the Dodge Challenger, the same car the driver in the Las Vegas crash was driving last year when he killed nine people, including himself. He had cocaine and PCP in his system, and he had a long record of speeding, including a traffic stop just weeks before. But he was never identified as a repeat offender. For crash survivor Tiffany May, that was hard to understand. The driving record was a stinger because he had just been pulled over right before the crash. Since the crash, May says she's learned a lot about roadway safety. She now works for Nevada's Office of Traffic Safety, and she's advocating for better solutions, including treatment options for people who drive under the influence of drugs and alcohol. My hope is change. We don't have to die in car crashes or on our roadways. This is absolutely preventable. Speed assistance technology won't prevent all crashes, May says, but it could be part of the solution. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. Think for a moment of the feeling you get, the tension in your shoulders when you're heading into a meeting that you think will go badly. A survey finds that many people of color have that feeling before visiting a doctor. They take extra care with their appearance and emotionally prepare for potential mistreatment. NPR's Maria Godoy reports. The survey was conducted by the health research organization KFF. Researchers polled a nationally representative sample of nearly 6,300 adults. The good news is that among those that had sought health care in the past three years, People reported having positive and respectful interactions with their healthcare providers most of the time. But the survey also uncovered troubling differences along racial and ethnic lines. Black, Hispanic, Asian, American Indian, and Alaska Native adults were much more likely than their white counterparts to report having negative interactions during healthcare visits, says Samantha Artiga of KFF. Things like a provider not listening to them, not answering a question or responding to a direct request, not prescribing pain medication that they thought they needed. For example, twice as many Black women who'd given birth in the last decade said they'd been refused pain medications they thought they'd needed compared to white women. And overall, at least a quarter of people of color said that doctors were less likely to involve them in decisions about their care. Artiga is Director of Racial Equity and Health Policy at KFF. 
She says these types of experiences with unfair treatment may help explain why large shares of the respondents of color who took the survey said they took certain steps to prepare for health care visits at least some of the time. For example, feeling like they have to dress very carefully or take a lot of care with their appearance in order to be respected and listened to by their healthcare provider. Saying that they sometimes prepare for possible insults from healthcare providers during healthcare visits. One bright spot in the findings people of color were much more likely to report having respectful, positive interactions when their healthcare providers shared their racial or ethnic background. That's in line with a growing body of research that's found that patients of color are more likely to be satisfied with healthcare interactions when their doctors look like them. However, in the U.S., data show Black and Hispanic doctors remain vastly underrepresented relative to their share of the population. Maria Godoy, NPR News. What is this? Data from a top-secret military project, born of the idea that sleep is the soldier's greatest enemy. person was conducting sleep deprivation experiments on Paris Island. Not deprivation. Eradication. Why? Why else? To build a better soldier. Sustained wakefulness dulls fear. Heightens aggression. So, Steve, a little personal, but did you get eight hours of sleep last night? What do you think? What do you think? I get up at three o'clock in the morning. No, I did not get eight hours of sleep last night. Anyway, that's what this job is like. True. Okay, well, don't worry. Duke University clinical psychologist Jessica Lunsford Avery says people do not have to worry so much about the amount of sleep they get. Instead, the focus should be on a regular sleep routine. If I go to bed around the same time every night, that's going to have health benefits for me. Cognitive benefits, mental health benefits. Her research shows that people who get seven hours or even six hours of sleep can still lead happy, healthy lives as long as they get about the same amount of sleep every night. Lauren Whitehurst is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Kentucky who studies sleep and health and warns against worrying about the eight-hour golden rule. Your body is really good at getting what it needs and desires. And so maybe you only need seven hours of sleep. And getting that seven hours of sleep at a regular time every day is going to optimize your ability to function in the world. There are a lot of factors that affect sleep, and a lot of people just can't hit that eight-hour standard. Your sleep duration could be more dictated by your kid's daycare schedule, or it might be more related to kind of your own personal parenting practices and what your routine looks like or your work schedule. So figure out your schedule and also figure out what kind of a person you are. You a night owl? You a morning lark? Either way, stick to a schedule. Regardless of whether you're more of a lark or more of an owl, if your patterns are consistent from day to day, then that increases the health benefits. But you still need to get a decent amount of sleep. Three or four hours a night won't cut it. Here's Lauren Whitehurst again. Your body cycles at night through a variety of different sleep stages. And if you're truncating your sleep and only getting about four hours, you're not going to get all of the sleep that you need. And you will lose out even more if you worry about your lack of sleep. Stressing out about it is going to make either of those things more difficult. Some advice to sleep on whenever we actually get some sleep, uh, Steve. I'm going to go take a nap. Yeah. I can't get no sleep. Stop using and selling drugs to one another. 
See, we're getting ready to be put in a real trap with this legalization of marijuana. So everybody, every black person can be unemployed and then they can sit in their corner and get high on marijuana with whatever they decide to put in it. And people won't be asking for jobs and being determined that they're going to get jobs and going to get an education. No, everybody can start getting high on marijuana because somebody said it's medicinal and it's legal. What about? So we better beware. The CDC says synthetic opioids, particularly fentanyl, contributed to about 75,000 overdose deaths in the United States last year. It's a crisis that hits every demographic group. But there are large racial disparities between who's offered the most effective treatment and who isn't. William Brangham reports for our ongoing series, America Addicted and Race Matters. I would travel from Washington, D.C. as far as to California really? to participate in martial arts tournaments. Kevin Hargrove has spent much of his life teaching and competing in martial arts. He loved the discipline and the combat. But now, this 66-year-old says his main fight is with pain. I've broken just about every bone in my body except my spine, my skull, my pelvis. That's where I was originally introduced to Tylenol 3s, Tylenol 4s, Percocets. The doctors would prescribe them for me. He started on prescription pain medication as a teenager. Those pills later became a habit he could not quit. By his 40s, his life was spiraling down. When you're going through codeine withdrawal, it's the same exact thing as going through uh, withdrawal from a drug, say, heroin. They're opiates. Hargrove now has no permanent home, still struggles with opioid addiction, and often has to sleep under a bridge in Washington, D.C. Once a month, he makes a long commute to go see the man who's trying to help him get a handle on that addiction. How have you been? Great, great, man. Thanks to you. Dr. Edwin Chapman. We're just going to get your medicine put in. Chapman is an addiction specialist who's been treating mostly African-American patients with opioid use disorders for more than two decades. You know, we've, we've, we've lost some patients, some that we just couldn't stabilize. Because Chapman prescribes all of his roughly 200 patients a drug called buprenorphine. Combined with another drug, it's known as Suboxone, and it helps people withdraw from opioids and reduces their cravings. It's one of three federally approved medications to treat opioid use disorders. Hargrove has been a patient of Dr. Chapman since 2017 and now takes Suboxone on his own four times a day. What role do you see Suboxone playing in his life? It's uh, a lifesaver. Uh, uh, I, I would dare to speculate, uh, knowing what has already happened, uh, I don't think Kevin would be here. Without it? Without it. But earlier this year, Hargrove had to switch his Medicaid-funded insurance to an insurer that no longer covered that full four doses of Suboxone. When he was only taking three, his cravings went up and he relapsed, buying on the street what he thought was codeine, but were counterfeit pills laced with fentanyl. He overdosed, but thankfully his sister found him. She told me my eyes went up into my head. I started slurring my words. And the next thing she knew, I was on the floor, not breathing and no pulse. 
Hargrove was saved by paramedics who used the overdose reversal drug, Narcan. You have this drug that you believe is really helping your patients, and they struggle with access, insurance, paying for it. How common is that? It, it's every day. It's, it's every day. We see about 20 patients a day. There's no standard of care, and that's what we're, we're concerned about, the fact that, that everybody should uh, have the same rules, and we should be able to dose everybody up to the, the maximum dose that we think they need because it, it saves lives. Hargrove's story is unfortunately a familiar one, particularly for black Americans. Across the U.S., overdose deaths among black people are rising faster than any other ethnic group, but they are far less likely to be prescribed these medications that are proven to treat opioid addiction. A recent study shows that white patients receive those medications up to 80% more frequently than black patients. There still remains very considerable barriers for black people compared to white people in accessing um, medication for addiction treatment for opiate use disorder. Dr. Ayana Jordan is an addiction psychiatrist who teaches at NYU's Grossman School of Medicine. She says black patients are often treated differently by addiction providers. There's still this thought that black people who have an opiate use disorder have to be controlled in a way that white people don't. That black people are not as trustworthy with their medications, that they won't be able to handle it, that they'll sell it. And what we've seen is that's not the case at all. This bias, she says, stems from several factors. Only 5% of all physicians in the U.S. are African-American, and black patients are less likely to have access to doctors who are authorized to prescribe buprenorphine. On top of that, pharmacies in black neighborhoods often don't carry addiction medications. So if you're a black person who has a substance use disorder, an opioid use disorder, who also needs access to the medication, you are not going to feel empowered to come out and ask for help because you already know that people are going to treat you differently. They're going to stigmatize you. Studies have found that white people are 35 times more likely to receive buprenorphine than blacks. The roots of this disparity date back several decades, says Helena Hansen. She's author of the book Whiteout, How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America. Why is it that there is such a huge racial disparity in who gets buprenorphine? The medication itself was introduced and legalized as a doctor's office-based treatment for opioid use disorder as a response to an, a suburban, a quote-unquote suburban perceived as white opioid um, crisis in the late 1990s to early 2000s. So this was rolled out as a treatment for a very specific clientele. Hansen says this results in black and brown patients often being left with only one medication treatment option, methadone, a medication that works but comes with many more strictures. If you are on methadone treatment in this country, you're restricted to a very small handful of clinics that are directly licensed and regulated by the DEA that require you to come in every day to be watched taking your medication to ensure that you're not um, diverting the medication, um, not swallowing it and perhaps trying to sell it on the street. You're going to be subject to regular urine testing. And it's a much different feeling than being in a private office with a personal doctor. And you haven't had any trouble with your diabetes or 
uh, blood pressure. Yeah. At Dr. Chapman's office in Northeast Washington, his mostly older patients have lived difficult lives. Many have been homeless or spent time in prison. But here, they not only receive buprenorphine, but also have regular physicals and can get mental health care as well. I want to see just once in my life how to live. Dr. Chapman says this is all particularly important in Washington, D.C., where black people account for more than 80 percent of all opioid overdose deaths since 2017. When we look at uh, overdose death statistics, we see that uh, generally only one out of 10 has actually been on medication-assisted treatment. So th there's an obvious gap there. For Kevin Hargrove, he's now back on his regular four-dose regimen of Suboxone and working every day to maintain his sobriety. If it was not for Dr. Chapman and not for me taking the Suboxone, uh, I would have been dead a long time ago. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm William Brangham in Washington, D.C. Since you're my special friend, come closer for a special treat. I'm going to let you touch me in a special place. It is never okay to touch someone else's private parts. Your mom and dad will tell you so. Earlier this year, Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, set up a child safety task force. It came after the Wall Street Journal and researchers at Stanford University and the University of Massachusetts Amherst found that Instagram's algorithm helped connect pedophiles to one another. During the ensuing five months, the Journal and the Canadian Center for Child Protection conducted tests to see if and how the problem was being addressed. They showed Meta's recommendation systems still promote that kind of content. So why is this such a challenge for the social media giant? Our reporter, Catherine Blunt, has been investigating this, and she's with me now. Catherine, tell us how you discovered Meta's platforms were still promoting pedophilic content even months after Meta set up this task force. Sure. So to be clear, Meta has made some progress through this task force in addressing some of the problems that were brought to light over the summer. But the challenge is that its algorithms are simply exceptionally good at promoting this kind of content to those who like it. One of the ways that we were checking on the progress that the company was made was simply to see if there were active hashtags that had been identified as problematic. And in some cases they were, or maybe the algorithm recommended a hashtag with a minor variation if the other had been taken down. It's part of a broader system that it's almost like whack-a-mole. The company can dismantle part of the network, but the algorithm will work to rebuild it or make it stronger somewhere else. You were also looking at different Facebook groups. Can you tell us what you found there? Yeah, so our early reporting focused largely on Instagram, but the problem extends to Facebook as well. We're looking specifically at how Facebook's algorithms help people find groups that are dedicated to these interests. And first of all, there's a very large number of groups out there with large memberships, say hundreds of thousands of users dedicated to children and sexual interest in children. And while Meta has hidden a lot of these groups from its search results, it's still an active ecosystem. And the groups you should join recommendation function helps pedophilic users find these groups and each other and, and join discussions that are overtly problematic. And what has Meta said in response to these hashtags and groups promoting pedophilic content? It's working on it. So, I mean, in addition to hiding groups, it's expanded technology that is meant to 
find and disable problematic accounts. It has been working to expand its technology capabilities to be able to detect not only problematic hashtags, but variations on such hashtags so that it doesn't continue to perpetuate in that cycle. But, you know, like everything, things take time and there have been some challenges in the manpower and the resources that they have to address this as they do a lot of other functions as well. We know Meta has been cutting costs and staff this year. Have the people who work on these sensitive issues been affected? Yes, there have been cuts in this area, and certain current and former employees have voiced frustration about the way resources have been allocated. This concern predates the creation of the Child Safety Task Force. This has been a challenge that the company has faced for a number of years now. And uh, certainly within the last year, there's been a, a shift of focus on the metaverse and a year of efficiency that has raised concerns among some that are working on some of the safety-oriented work within the company. And what has Meta said about those cost cuts? Meta has said that the cost cuts were not detrimental to the overall safety work that is continuing to perform. Okay, so I guess the big question in all of this is, why is it so hard for Meta to take down pedophilic or other problematic content off its platforms? Basically, the challenge here is that the algorithmic systems that the company has in place are really good at fostering these networks. There's a large amount of content that needs to be addressed. It's a minority of the content on the platform, but that, that doesn't mean it's a small problem. But of course, something that the company is really focused on is not making changes to the algorithm that are going to you know, affect advertising and revenue and cause collateral damages to the way it functions for the broader set of users that really benefit from the algorithms and the way that they're able to help people find all kinds of content and connections outside their immediate circles. It's a difficult balance to strike. And to date, the company has been reticent to make substantial changes in that way because, again, it has the potential to affect every user, not just the users that are being targeted through this task force. And how do we know that the company is focused on advertising? We looked through uh, a number of company documents, and within that is, a, I mean, a real discussion about making sure that actions taken by employees didn't do anything to affect advertising or create friction in that way. That was our reporter, Catherine Blunt. So how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a, um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race so we can discuss the incident and the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service? Uh, no comment. Tension has been building this week since the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania testified on Capitol Hill about the steps that their institutions are taking to protect students from anti-Semitism on campus. Harvard's Claudine Gay, Penn's Liz McGill, and Sally Kornbluth of MIT appeared before the House Committee on Education and the Workforce on Tuesday. In one intense exchange during more than three hours of testimony, New York Republican Congresswoman and Harvard alum Elise Stefanik questioned Gay about whether calls for the genocide of Jews would violate the university's code of conduct. It is at odds with the values of Harvard. Can you but not say here that it is also, against the code of conduct at Harvard? We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. It's when that speech crosses into conduct that violates our policies against bullying, harassment, Does that speech and not cross that barrier? Does that speech not call for the genocide of Jews and the elimination of Israel? 
All three university presidents have faced widespread condemnation since appearing on the Hill and equivocating on this question. The fallout has been swift. North Carolina Republican Virginia Fox, who heads the committee, announced an inquiry into the learning environments at the schools. Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York said all three presidents should resign. Hedge fund manager Ross Stevens threatened to pull a $100 million donation from the University of Pennsylvania. And thousands of Harvard alumni have written to that school's board demanding its president, Claudine Gay, be replaced. All right. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo joins us now to talk about all of this fallout. Hey, Sequoia. Hi, Elsa. Okay. So this hearing, I mean, it's clearly touched a nerve and all three universities are now facing possible consequences. What is the latest at this point? Well, let's start with Liz McGill. So she's the president of UPenn and calls from her school and her state to resign are maybe the loudest right now. Donors are mad. Like you mentioned, one is even threatening to pull $100 million. (laughs) Six members of Congress from Pennsylvania also sent a letter to the school's board of trustees calling for McGill's resignation. Now, some are asking for the chair of the board to resign, too. The board is meeting today to talk about it. But pressure has been mounting on McGill for some time. Students, alumni, donors started to raise concerns back in September after an event on campus hosted speakers who had a history of anti-Semitic comments and behavior. Fast forward to October 7th and the Hamas attack and the Israeli military response in Gaza, tensions grow even higher, and these calls are echoed even louder. People like John Huntsman, former governor of Utah and U.S. ambassador to Russia, China, and Singapore, said his family would halt their donations. And things keep happening on campus. In November, a group of staff members received disturbing emails calling for violence against the Jewish community. Later that month, anti-Semitic messages were projected outside three buildings at Penn. Okay, that's Penn. What about Harvard and, and MIT? MIT's board actually issued a statement yesterday saying that they stand behind their president, Sally Kornbluth. But Claudine Gay of Harvard has been facing similar calls to resign. She issued a statement after the testimony to clarify her responses. She said calls for violence or genocide against the Jewish community or any religious or ethnic group are vile. They have no place at Harvard. And those who threaten our Jewish students will be held to account. And then yesterday... She doubled down. Gay sat down with the student newspaper on campus and apologized. She said she's sorry and that she, quote, got caught up in what had become at that point an extended combative exchange about policies and procedures. Harvard has faced similar problems to Penn with anti-Semitic incidents on campus. The most widely covered one being the letter signed by students in the wake of the October 7th attack, Mm -hmm. which held Israel entirely responsible for the unfolding violence. That prompted outrage from donors and alumni. That's right. I want to go back for a minute to Gay's apology at Harvard when she said her testimony had become an exchange about policies and procedures, as she put it. I mean, yeah, her Mm -hmm. answers were about the line between speech and conduct, but there's so much more to it than that, right? Right. Freedom of speech on campus is often tied up in the broader culture wars playing out in American politics right now. And this week's hearing was absolutely no exception. There is pressure from all sides. The Biden administration even spoke up. The Department of Education sent a letter to college administrators last month saying that schools must take aggressive actions to address anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on campuses or else risk losing federal funding. You also have Virginia Fox of North Carolina, like you said, Republican chair of the House Committee on Education, issuing a statement yesterday that they're launching a formal investigation into Harvard, UPenn, and MIT. 
That is Empire's Sequoia Carrillo. Thank you, Sequoia. Beef is oil prices and geopolitics. Beef is Iraq, the West Bank, and Gaza Strip. Palestinian and Arab officials say they are outraged over images of scores of Palestinian men stripped of their underwear under the guard of Israeli soldiers. Meanwhile, the United States is being criticized for vetoing a United Nations Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. For more, we turn now to NPR's Frank Langfitt in Tel Aviv. Frank, thanks for being with us. It's good to be with you, Scott. Please, for those who haven't seen them, describe these images and uh, what the reaction has been. I think one of the most striking ones was this video panning dozens of men. They're sitting on on a street. The heads are bowed, they're in their underwear, and they're Israeli soldiers milling about on the sidewalk. And Egypt's foreign minister called the images catastrophic and said they degraded the men. And the International Committee of the Red Cross also expressed a lot of concern. How do the Israelis respond? Well, the army here, they're saying they discovered these guys in an area where civilians were supposed to have been evacuated weeks ago. And they're now saying they're checking to see you know, who of them might actually be Hamas fighters, Israeli TV aired the footage, which is thought to have been taken by soldiers, but it's not entirely clear. Now, a Gaza resident did tell a news organization that these men were sheltering with others in a school in northern Gaza, and Israeli forces just rounded them up and then forced them to strip to their underwear. Why would soldiers order them to to strip down? Well, this is a common practice by Israeli military forces, particularly you see this in the West Bank, and they say it's to make sure there are no bomb vests or weapons. But I was talking to a man named Shlomo Brom. He's a retired brigadier general with the Israeli army. And I asked him about these images, and this is what he told me. These pictures should not be publicized because they are humiliating. And why do you think someone might have put them out? He might think that it is good to raise moral in Israel, or maybe it is good as a kind of psychological war against Hamas. And and Scott, I have to emphasize... Rome is just speaking for himself, not the military. And we still don't know exactly where these images came from. Is there any way to verify if they are, in fact, Hamas fighters? Not yet. You know, Israel has effectively a ban on journalists going to Gaza. But it's clear already that some of the people in these images are not from Hamas. NBR has confirmed that one person shown is, in fact, a journalist for a media outlet close to Qatar. And our colleague, Leila Fadl, she spoke with the United Nations aid administrator in the United States, and, and he actually recognized some of his own family members in the images. This man's name is Hani Almadun. Hani said he recognized his brother, Mahmoud, in the back of an Israeli army truck. And, and he said there's no way his brother could be working with Hamas. I mean, I know my brother. He's, he can't run two meters, yet alone to be a fighter. You know, he's a, just a shopkeeper in Gaza. Hani says he, he found the images revealing, and he also thinks they contain a political message. I'm beginning to understand this war is not just on Hamas. This is just a much bigger war on our own existence, our own identity. And this is the images that communicate that we're defeated people. Frank, of course, the war began with Hamas killing about 1,200 people in southern Israel in a surprise attack on October 7th. Uh, since then... Israeli airstrikes have killed more than 17,000 people in Gaza, according to the health ministry there. We know the U.S. has been trying to put more pressure on Israelis to reduce civilian casualties. What's the Israeli response been like? Well, I think they are listening and they say they're doing what they can. Um, And they have to listen to the Americans because the Americans are providing the weapons. But Israeli analysts 
this week told me that they think the U.S. is going to give more time to Israel to cripple Hamas, even if it costs more civilian lives and, and generates more anger and criticism of the U.S. and Israel here and overseas. I'm Pierce Frank Langford in Tel Aviv. Thanks so much for being with us. Good to talk, Scott. Just moments ago, we heard from the outspoken governor of Maine, Paul LePage, who is facing a whole lot of criticism for these comments. Some are calling racially charged that he made at a town hall regarding drug trafficking in his state. Listen. These are people that take drugs. These are guys that are named D-Money, Smoothie, Shifty. Uh, these type of guys, they come from Connecticut, New York. They come up here, they sell their heroin, then they go back home. Incidentally, half the time they impregnate a young white girl before they leave, which is a real sad thing because then we have another issue that we've got to deal with down the road. Interesting. You know, you heard some chuckles when he said That's shifty I, yeah. and be money. You didn't hear any chuckles when he said impregnated white girls there. It's been nearly six weeks since a mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, left 18 dead and 13 injured. But this past Saturday, several hundred people filled the downtown streets, and some see these types of celebrations as a way to help process their trauma and grief. But Susan Sharon of Maine Public Radio found that other Lewiston residents are not ready to gather yet. Christmas was Joe Walker's favorite time of year. He was the essence of jolly, says his daughter Bethany Welch, someone who knew how to make other people laugh. He had these, like, elf costume he would wear at all the family Christmas parties, and he would make my mom dress up with him. And then he will do, like, Santa dressing, too, because he had the belly to be like Santa. Walker was the manager of Schmengi's Bar and Grill. He was among those killed by a man who also opened fire at a bowling alley a few miles away on October 25th. Just three days before he died, Welch says her dad called her, and they had a lengthy, unplanned conversation about her immediate life goals. Graduation from nursing school at the University of Connecticut, buying a house, and marrying her fiancé, for starters. He was just like, yep, that sounds like a good plan, daughter. I'm so proud of you, like, and all this stuff. And then I don't want to go back on my word. Like, he approved it. He was proud of it. He knew what it was. When she heard about the shootings, Welch says she jumped in her car and drove for several hours through the night straight to Schmengi's from Connecticut, desperate for any word about her dad. His permanent absence has yet to hit her, she says. She got through Thanksgiving by distracting herself with work, but she graduates this month, and then there's Christmas. Yeah, it's going to be a hard one. Even those who didn't lose anyone are trying to figure out how to get into the Christmas spirit and then how to move forward. Merry Christmas! Happy Hanukkah! Happy Kwanzaa! Happy Holidays! Matthew and Martha Agron of Lewiston showed up for the city's menorah and tree lighting ceremony wearing We Are One Lewiston t-shirts underneath their jackets. We became one town one horrible evening. It's the first time in a long time this town's been united over anything. And I hope it stays that way for many years to come. The Agrons say it's uplifting to gather for occasions like this one. But other residents still aren't comfortable going out. As a result, Shanna Cox, president of the Lewiston-Auburn Chamber of Commerce, says some hospitality businesses are down by as much as 60%. The chamber has started one of several fund drives to help the community recover. We're all just at different points in that journey. I think what I do see universally is a desire to find a way through. And I'm so glad to see the resiliency that has always been here in Lewiston, where 
we're gritty and we're, we're an underdog people. And so we know folks are rooting for us. For bar owner Kathy LaBelle, finding a way through will likely mean reopening Schmangies in a different location. LaBelle wasn't working the night of the shooting, but she says she still feels powerless about not doing more to protect her loyal customers and friends. She's carried that sense of unease to her other Lewiston restaurant, where she now pictures herself like a flight attendant. Welcome to the station grill. Please have a seat, take a look at your menu. To your right is an exit, and to your left, please pay attention to the other exit. And it's not right, but that's kind of how I feel. Like, I want people to be aware. LaBelle isn't sure how she'll get by without Joe Walker, whom she calls her right-hand man. But this year, she's carrying on his holiday tradition of raising money for needy families. Walker's daughter, Bethany Welch, meanwhile, has amended the life plan she shared with her dad. After watching first responders in action on the tragic night of the shootings, she says she's found her calling as a trauma nurse. She's confident he'd be pleased. For NPR News, I'm Susan Sharon in Lewiston, Maine. When you're a cop, you can torment freely and see me valley, then seize it out, then being proudly, turn a routine traffic stop to your season finale when you're a cop. From ABC News 4 in Charleston, this is ABC News 4 at 11. Thank you for joining us. Earlier today, Charleston County Sheriff's Office released the body camera video from a former deputy who was arrested and charged with assault and battery in the third degree. The video shows James Carter III knocking Rashard Duncan unconscious after a pursuit. This evening, Marvin Pendarvis, the attorney representing Duncan, hosted a press conference calling this one of the most egregious examples of excessive force he's ever seen. Claire Weber was at that press conference and joins us now with more from Duncan's attorneys. Claire? Tessa, attorneys on both sides of this incident have been waiting for this body camera video to be made public for weeks. They've wanted to clear the air on what they say really happened. And as a warning to viewers, the video is graphic. 23 minutes of body camera video finally released to the public. It shows former Charleston County Deputy James Carter III punching Rashard Duncan in the face eight times, knocking him unconscious. This point in the video is where it sounds like former Deputy Carter calls Duncan the N-word. A local attorney who has studied the footage says he doesn't think this was an isolated incident. The fact that he would conduct himself in such a manner Knowing that the video was rolling is bewildering and it's indicative to me of a, of a, of a broader problem within the sheriff's department. It was clear to me that he didn't feel that he was going to have to answer for his actions. And that this is something that's probably gone on many times before and he's probably gotten away with. Attorney Marvin Pendarvis agrees. He represents Duncan. Pendarvis thinks people in the sheriff's office let the former deputy think he could get away with acting the way he did. Hiring practices, training practices, things that if you've known this has happened, why do you continue to put these deputies on the street? Pendarvis has asked the Department of Justice to investigate this incident and the entire sheriff's office. We received a pre-recorded statement from the sheriff when the body cam footage was released. We are responsible for who works at our agency and who represents us in this community. Our agency and law enforcement in general has no tolerance, zero tolerance for the kind of behavior that was witnessed on that body camera. And we believe immediate 
and appropriate action was taken as a result of it. Attorneys for the former deputy have argued their client didn't use a racial slur against Duncan. In a statement, they say it's a false narrative being spread by Duncan's attorneys. But Pendarvis and others disagree. They say they're in this fight not only for their client, but for all of Charleston County's safety. How did it get to this point? I mean, if, if we um, as attorneys and, 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 and you as the general public don't do this, then there could be another Mr. Duncan. And, and that person may not live to see the light of day. Former Deputy Carter turned himself in on November 27th and was released on bond the same day. Claire Weber, News 4. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. St. Louis, Missouri, one of five states to carry out executions this year, has a long history of racial discrimination when it comes to sentencing people to death, according to a report published Friday. The state executed four defendants this year, three of whom were white and one who was black. But the Death Penalty Information Center's report said 40% of the 216 Missouri death sentences in the last four decades were imposed on black defendants. It also found that one-third of the state's pending death sentences were handed down during St. Louis County Prosecuting Attorney Bob McCulloch's tenure from 1991 to 2018. Of the 23 death sentences McCulloch secured, the report said at least eight were overturned or commuted by higher courts. His successor, Prosecuting Attorney Wesley Bell, has promised not to seek the death penalty. Nothing can change the fact that racial violence and discrimination are part of Missouri's history, said Tiana Herring, the lead author of the report, in a statement. But studying the past can help us understand why racial disparities continue today, especially in our death penalty system, and inform future decisions. The Death Penalty Information Center is a national nonprofit that provides data and analysis on capital punishment. The report said black people comprise just under 12% of the total state population, but 67% of people arrested for homicides in Missouri were black in 2022. On its face, the comparatively high percentage of black people who have been sentenced to death may seem fair given that two-thirds of homicide offenders have been black, researchers wrote. However, it does raise questions as to why black people are so overrepresented among those arrested for homicide. The report also highlighted that while 40% of death sentences have been given to black defendants, 62% of 21 misconduct reversals or exonerations have been for black defendants. In addition, three of the four people who have been exonerated from Missouri's death row are black men. All three cases were marred by official misconduct, the report said. The race of the homicide victim also affects who is sentenced to death rather than life in prison, according to researchers. Homicides involving white victims are seven times more likely to result in an execution than those with black victims and 80% of all death sentences imposed in Missouri since 1972 have involved white victims, even though roughly 36% of homicide victims in the state are white. The disparate use of capital punishment for white victims, particularly white female victims, is reminiscent of historical death sentences and lynchings in Missouri, the report said. The study also cited 2020 homicide data that revealed that, for the seventh year in a row, Missouri had the highest black homicide victimization rate in the country. Missouri has not doled out any new death sentences this year, according to the report. The state also does not have any execution scheduled as of Friday. The four people killed by the state this year are Johnny Johnson on August 1st, Michael Tesius on June 6th, Leonard Taylor on February 7th, and Amber McLaughlin on January 3rd. Johnson, Tesius, and McLaughlin are white and all three were convicted of killing white people. Leonard, a black man, 
was convicted of killing his girlfriend and her three children, all four of whom were black. Deepik said his credible claim of innocence was ignored by the state prior to his execution. McLaughlin's execution is believed to be the first of a transgender woman in the U.S. And some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? According to a federal arrest affidavit, the Doniana County District Attorney received a racially charged voicemail over the phone, and now a man is being charged for making those threats. Action 7 News reporter John Carnier is here to tell us the suspect isn't even from New Mexico. Yeah, that's right, Shelley and Doug. The FBI says that they were able to track down the caller who lives in Lodi, Ohio. So what prompted the alleged call from more than 1,600 miles away? Turns out was police body camera video. On October 3rd, 2023, at 4.45 a.m., Teresa Gomez was in her car and was approached by Las Cruces police officer Felipe Hernandez. Roll the window down. Officer Hernandez asks Gomez to step out of the car and tells her the man inside her vehicle is trespassing on the property, so he's going to conduct an investigation. Let's not make it difficult because I will, I will really, really make your life a living hell. The encounter eventually led to the death of Gomez. Stop! Stop! Officer Hernandez has not been charged with any crime related to Gomez's death. This was a, a case out of Las Cruces. It, it went viral online. People all over the country were seeing it. And apparently it, it got this one person in Ohio so angry that he decided to break the law. And that's what happened according to this federal affidavit. It claims on October 26th, Dona Ana County District Attorney Gerald Byers received a voicemail about the case. The FBI tracked down a uh, man in Ohio who had apparently used the telephone to call the DA in Las Cruces, Gerald Byers and made some very specific threats, used very explicit racial language, and made threats about putting uh, the DA in a noose. The FBI says they tracked the call to Lodi, Ohio, and they are now charging Donald Fowler with transmitting threats across state lines. We asked KOAT legal expert John Day if the case could also be investigated as a hate crime. A hate crime under federal law is a crime that's motivated by hatred, bias, uh, prejudice uh, towards anybody because of, of, a, of their skin color, of their religion, their race, uh, their gender. So is that possible that this would be, uh, there would be an additional hate crime charge? It's certainly possible. We reached out to the Doniana County DA's office and they referred us to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of New Mexico. They told us they can't comment on pending investigations. I'm John Cardinelli reporting KOAT Action 7 News. John Day says threats like this are not common in New Mexico. Fowler faces up to five years in federal prison. Michael Brown Jr. Mm. Michael Brown Jr. Not forgotten. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday. December 9, 2023. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, uh, counter racist suggestions to share the number 605 313 5164. The code 564943 pound. Press star 61. If you would like 
to participate. The number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Not for spectators. Man, few things to share before we get to uh, callers and all the rest of it. Uh, one, really even going out of order, uh, one, I do not have children. If you are an attempted parent, that segment I try to do, you know, my part, having non-white children, especially if they're classified as black, that is an extraordinary assignment that is putting it mildly take that responsibility extraordinarily seriously got to talk to your children that report that we heard today like man we just can't keep the child rapists off of IG and the, the algorithm it just works so splendidly that we just get our big gang of child rapists together up to no good raping children keep saying over and over wait as long as you can before you give your child that smartphone probably don't need to have your 12 year old 13 year old 14 year old on social media now last week it was the report about all of these online sex scams targeting young boys specifically trying to get money and nude photographs from them. That's lots of reports about that of late. Then you heard the one about IG Instagram this week. Do not wait as long as you can. I'm not an expert on anything and I don't have children. The report, it, it sounds logical to me. This was from a parent and people who study this issue seriously. They said, hey, I've never talked to a parent and said, you know, we waited until 15, 17 to give our child an iPhone. We really should have given them that phone at 12. Never heard that. I understand they shoot up the schools. Don't you think I missed it? The UNLV shooting this week, three casualties. It is the University of Nevada, Las Vegas rebels. So you might need to have your child to have a phone. Got it. They don't need a smartphone. If you're going to have a, a computer, I said it should be out someplace public, right? So you can see, got to check their search history and all of that again. I would probably not have my child on social media until maybe 17, 18. I mean, why do you need to be on social media at 12, 13? Like I would like if we're just going to do a cost, uh, what is it? Risk benefit analysis. You being what? What is the upside of you being on IG X or whatever else? What is the up like? Okay. They got the child rapist gang. Eh, you can get some followers. Mm. Social media influencer. Mm. 
child rapists? I mean, really. We've heard from folks, listeners to this broadcast, who've talked about friends, family members, people that they know, where children that are one, two, three, five, already got their own phone. That's not even to mention all the time that they get to hang out on someone else's phone and do, you know, God knows what. Uh, hey, monumental task being a parent. <laughs> That's why I think one of our geniuses say, hey, don't have the children you really don't have to have them if it seems daunting because man it seems daunting to me but man take it super serious so much of this environment is about the sexual predators we talked to Jerry uh, Jeffrey Epstein Jerry Sandusky all we talked about Woody we read his bio so much of this environment Mary Kay Letourneau, how I leave out the women. I'm in Seattle. Mary Kay Letourneau. We should read a book. I have to see if I can find a book. And I feel like that's kind of dereliction of duty for me to be right here in Seattle. And that's where that happened at. I remember talking to Neely Fuller Jr. And he said that he should shame, shame on you. Because he said uh, he was explaining the sexual intercourse thing being incorrect. This was like before the cows even existed. And uh, he said, yeah, it's the same thing. It's Mary Kay Letourneau every time. I was like, what? It's like, Mary Kay, what? Where are you calling from again? <laughs> it's like, uh... Seattle. He said, Oh my God, how do you not know? It's like, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't, I, I didn't check the news before I started studying white supremacy racism. So I missed Mary Kay Letourneau. <sighs> Legend of Seattle. Anyway, Fuller on the other side of the continent. He knew didn't even need social media. Anyway, all of that to say, there are lots of Mary Kay Letourneau's and apparently IG, probably Facebook too, since they said meta, so probably Facebook, all of it seems to work very well for child predators and child rapists. That should be, unfortunately, a conversation you have with your children. If you're already doing this, if your children like Facebook, huh? What is that? Huh? Instagram, what? Bravo. Bravo. Keep it up and share. Maybe talk to other parents, see what they're doing and all of that good stuff. But all of this is stuff to discuss before you have the children. From someone who does not have children, and that would be a reason why. All righty. Now, for this week, we should be very active. It's so-called holiday season stressful time for lots of it stressful time for even a lot of white people I think one of our listeners reminded us of that yesterday that is totally true it's almost a cliche for white people to say oh my god I need 50 drinks and all these bills and I gotta hang out with my relatives and oh my children are gonna kill me for all the gifts that they want and all the stuff they don't need that is the season so try as best you can manage your mental health hopefully disengage from all of the so called holiday nonsense and just be about constructive activity, really be about our cosmic assignment, replacing white supremacy with justice, walk it better than we talk it. So we should be on, I think, every day this week. I just have to double check for Sunday. Um, we may have one irregularity, meaning we should have someone from a different part of the world uh, and might be an odd time, but everything should be normal broadcast time. I am out of my flipping mind out of my flipping mind how lucky could we be I ask for a white guest we're going to talk about 
a privileged black male who was lynched so many of them I try to be diligent we're gonna to speak to an author guest anybody really and just check see if you know they've done other projects whatever I look this white person has written a whole report on racist jokes oh overjoyed so that is Tuesday man oh man I will be elated caffeinated probably Wednesday the report that we heard about the monuments so on time I was going to play France Wind Dance Twine she was a guest on the program way back uh one of the programs I am very proud of, we've done well over 2,000 broadcasts. That one in particular, we talked about her book, uh, which was dealing with cowbell, white women who have sexual intercourse and produce children with mostly black males in the UK specifically. So she comes on to talk about the program. We don't have rancor. It sounded a lot more cordial than what was happening at the hearing on anti-Semitism this week. Bet you still can't spell it. Um, it was much more cordial than all of that and she conceded through the course of our discussion and mostly just asking questions and reading from the text she conceded she did not write an accurate book about racism man to get an author to admit that in a public discussion without rancor cursing stomping up and down just asking questions and following logic one of one Gus T flipping renegade anyway she was on the program and one bit of constructive information that she gave about monuments uh, within the US enforce white supremacy racism uh, Jacqueline Battalora admitted racist did the same thing enforced monuments of white supremacy racism she was at the white privilege conference I think she went I don't have confirmation but I'm very sure she is an admitted racist that she went and told Dr. Eddie Moore Cowbell Jr that I wouldn't give her a hug, which is true, but she went and snitched like immediately. Anyway, she did uh, explain that her first visit uh, on the cows, that the Texas Rangers and all of these monuments in a variety of ways support white supremacy racism. Elizabeth Alexander was in the segment that we heard and they were talking about that they got millions of dollars to go out and change this and make it fair. Man, that word fair was used so many times in the segments this week. But Elizabeth Alexander, president of the Andrew, uh, was it Andrew Mellon Foundation? Make sure I get the full correct name. Uh, but to all these millions of dollars for these monuments, she mentioned Central Park in New York and she said that they had more monuments to make believe and fairies and Disney characters and all of that, as opposed to authentic females who lived. And she pointed to Central Park. How in the world do you, and you're talking, you want to bring in the feminism, homie, let's bring in the feminism. We can put it front and center with the white supremacy racism. Do a double whammy, if you will. Central. So this is the same Central Park 
that until very recently had a huge monument to the father of gynecology, J. Marion Sims. You don't mention that at all. Hmm. Hmm. That's the sort of thing that I point to. So are you ignorant about this? Like, really? I'm dumb, ignorant, Gus T. Everybody says that I'm dumb. Okay, they're probably true. Greatly retarded. You are the president of this foundation and have millions of dollars. Do you not know this? Do you not think it's relevant to the discussion? Which do I think is more important even? J. Marion Sims, the father of gynecology? white slave owner tortured and butchered black females one of the key figures in medical apartheid in my top five that doesn't get mentioned at all and that's not the only monument to J. Marion Sims no way didn't we hear South Carolina they didn't take his statue down in South Carolina unless I have been misinformed you know what? He also has statues. Alabama. I don't think they took it down there either. Unless I've been misinformed. Father of gynecology. All of that. Ugh. The cows remains the metronome. We were already supposed to be talking about J. Marion Sims on Wednesday. Brand new book about him and his whole legacy of white supremacy racism and even gives great detail as to why he got these statues in Alabama South Carolina New York why did he get them for butchering black people that's Wednesday racist jokes Tuesday ending blind eye it's not even a long book this has been easily the best book of the year which is stunning because we read all that on Columbine and Sue Klebold, which is so interesting and learned so much, but Mike Double O Swango, victim of anti-white prejudice, that right there, that right there, we are never reading fiction again on this, like, are you serious? I did not even know. I hadn't read this book before. I just thought it was some wacky white dude who was going around killing people and he went to hide out in Africa that's you know the gist that I knew from watching television once I got into the details oh my god we would have read this book a long time ago I would have mentioned every time someone mentioned Nurse Rivers during COVID-19 Mike Swango Mike Swango Mike Zimbabwe Swango that's the reason that you mean black people might be a little bit hesitant about getting a needle from a white person. Oh, yes, yes, Mike Swain. That's not ancient history. I mean, you just convicted him, right? So this is, we got color footage. He's still alive. I don't even know who Nurse Rivers is. No, no, no. Mike Double O Zimbabwe Swango. Yes, that's why I'm a little bit hesitant about a white man, a white woman in a lab coat wrapping the book up this week again now I will have to say man they do have a lot of documentaries on Mike Swango I tried to be diligent 
read as many articles as I could. There are bunches. Tried to watch as many, as much footage as I could get my hands on. One important discrepancy. The majority, and I would even say the unanimous, all of the written reports and such that I've seen, they will concede. No one really knows how many people Swango killed. It's estimated that we think he killed about 60 people, give or take. Who really knows? But even, I mean, one is, but 60, wow. One documentary. He says they go and they get him to confess. He confesses. He pleads guilty when they eventually convict him for, I think, three murders total. He confesses. He had been killing people for approximately 20 years some of us, we talked about this in the book club. It seemed like he was probably killing people when he was working at different, uh, on uh, different paramedic staffs throughout the U.S. And then he volunteered at hospitals and then he goes to the continent and is working at multiple hospitals there and such. This went on for 20 years. He was poisoning his coworkers too and his girlfriends and all of that. By the time, th- he explains, the time you think of all that and he says, oh man, once I got to the continent, saw all those dark people, I really got rolling. That's what he said in the documentary. One film, they said, not 60. They said, man, I think I might have killed a thousand people. Many white serial killers, they will lie about how many folks that they've killed and all of that. Because he was doing this for so long in so many places in an environment where death is kind of, oh, yeah, no big deal. People are around, supposed to die. I easily, like if you give 60, a thousand, which do I think this is closer to? All day long. A th- it would be easy. You give him 20 years and it's everybody. is like he was poisoning the girlfriends and co-workers and people. Easily. Thousand. That is probably closer to the accurate number. And I've only heard that one time. Everybody else just gives the 60. We will wrap up on Thursday. I will make sure to produce so you know I'm not making this up so that you can hear the one time where they give. This is probably closer to a thousand for Dr. Death. That would be the name to mention. Not Nurse Rivers. Mike Swango. That's why I don't want to go to the white doctor, white lab coat, if you're even a doctor. Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Now, get to some of the tidbits from the report of uh, one I will concede this week. I don't know if people paid attention because there were so many wacky things that they were talking about. Uh, it's this week marked 10 years since the passing of Madiba Nelson Mandela, uh, first black president. So they say in the area of the world known as South Africa, uh, lots of talk, uh, at least in South Africa and even some other parts of the world, they talked about this and how younger black people in South Africa, how they view Mandela and his legacy. I know they've had many talks before, but was he a sellout and, you know, <sighs> pitiful. Anyway, uh, the, what I didn't hear right in vain with Mike Swango and what we just heard from Dr. Robert Kaplan is Wuta Basson and his chemical and biological weapons program. Give it two times for the great Harry A. Washington that's the last chapter of the book where she talks about how Dr. Basson, who is still practicing medicine today, according to Dr. Robert Kaplan, who we just heard from in Australia. Dr. Basson 
specifically targeting biological weapons to attack dark people who were in the ANC in Contoisi's way Madiba and he had dinner with Madiba just spicy chicken like Swango we just talked about I didn't hear that brought up at all I will have to take time I've had so many listeners over the years uh, the Catherine Massey book club very proud of all the material that we've read over a decade and particularly our memoirs the bio kings uh, we did read long walk to freedom Nelson Mandela uh, that was one I didn't even want to read that was back when we took listener input listeners wanted to read that right when he died uh, to the end of 2013 and that is a long book that's one of the reasons that I have not taken the time to put it back in the archives because it's so long but even this racist man racist woman racist child most to blame because they have disrupted uh, our archive so and I've had to go back and upload programs uh, repeatedly and that sort of thing and that is a long segment that is a long book it took us months uh, I think that and uh, Isabel Wilkerson's first book uh, Warmth of Other Sons I think those are like the two longest books that we've read in the book club so that one uh, it would probably take me a few days to sit and get all of that uploaded but I should even because when they give discussions like that and they leave out pertinent information uh, like Mm, they urinated on him while they had him in captivity and what I just said chemical and biological weapon that would be two uh, to leave out when they give you oh yes and they locked him up and yes and then he got out and first president he liked soccer yes that old Madiba and yeah when he got on our nerves too yeah shout to uh, Winnie Mandela now uh, I will have to get that in the archives so that people can study that one since we're doing our remembrances the great Pamela Evans Harris not forgotten uh, still black love is a revolutionary act formally worst book I've ever read no change at all also in the Catherine Massey book club archives you heard her at the top of the program they talked about Norman Lear suspected racist who died at 101 I was like that's Strom Thurmond right dear Senator S.E. May Washington Williams remember like dang is that the, the white supremacy health care plan you get a full century plus chilling and I mean not decrepit and all of that like wow okay so Norm Lear passes away at 101 and he gets all of this credit for Sanford and Son and the Jeffersons and all in the family. If we have younger listeners, and I, it really, I think these shows are so popular and have been syndicated for so long. I think you'd have to be like 10 or something to have never seen or heard of these shows. Uh, we heard Pam, she said, now she was talking uh, well inside of the 21st century. That was probably like 2011, 2013, somewhere in there. And she said that in Chicago, major U.S. city, Sanford and Son and these shows are on syndication. She said it comes on at least five day, five times a week, at least, as though they might have marathons from time to time. So unless you're like 10 or something, you have probably seen some, if not all of these shows, at least once, or at least you have a passing knowledge of, oh yeah, okay, I've got a 
idea. And people say, oh, they, he ushered in an era and made it acceptable to see black people on TV and all of that. The Chicago Tribune, they had a great article this week on Norman Lear. I shared it already. Uh, and they were talking about how some of the black writers for these shows like Good Time, particularly Good Times, uh, because that was set in Chicago, uh, that these black writers uh, were totally erased from the record uh, and normally this white suspected racist white man got all of the credit all of the money too they had to go to court for that that's included in the article got all the credit got all of the money and their names aren't even mentioned and they totally eroded what these black people who actually lived in Chicago just like Dr. Welsing uh, and wanted to tell an authentic story about how these black people, victims of racism, what their experience was like in the Windy City, shifted it to all of this, you know, goofy uh, Negro entertainment, telling jokes and all the rest of it. Buffoon, black buffoonery, basically uh, minstrelsy uh, that all of that was in the Chicago Tribune this week. I have to uh, give the exact report, as I said, which I've already shared. Uh, but man, we had uh, Pamela Evans Harris on in I think it's 2011 and talking about upload I did take the time some, I think it was the end of last year to make sure that I uploaded again the program we played an entire episode of Sanford and Son and they actually adapted that uh, Sanford and Son for uh, South African television I was trying to see if I could find it on YouTube but I just found that out once he died this uh, week and was doing research, but they had apparently, I, I don't know if it was black people like in some sort of shanty town, but if anybody can find the South African version of Sanford and Son, I'm totally down to see that. That's it. Uh, but Pamela Evans here, she was on the program and we watched or we listened to an entire episode of Sanford and Son and just deconstructed what they were talking about and all of the anti-blackness. I have no, I, I literally, I, I, the impetus for me going back to make sure that I had that episode in the archives was I had someone on social media chastise me and say that, you know, Sanford and son represents authentic Negro culture, you know, and, and name calling is, is an affectionate endearing part of Negro culture. muted. Uh, the article uh, from the Chicago Tribune the complicated legacy of Norman Lear and good times. It can't be racist, right? It can't be the racist legacy of Norman Lear. Anyway, oh let me give the article author, sorry. Written by Nina Metz. Nina Metz, December 6th, uh, just three days ago. Uh, see if I can give you the juicy tip. Here we go, yes. There are countless basic cable channels, channels offering a lineup of older shows, and Lear's work is featured prominently. Last year, one of those cable channels ran a post on social media promoting Good Times. Originally airing from 1974 to 1979, it was the fourth consecutive hit sitcom created by Norman Lear. It's frustrating to see Eric Monty continually erased from the record, along with actor Mike Evans, Monty was the show's co-creator and based good times on his own childhood growing up in Chicago's Cabrini Green. I've been to Cabrini Green. Formerly they tore down now. The struggle of the Evans family in the show wasn't sugar-coated but it was depicted with grace and humor and humanity. Rare was the sitcom that put a, a black family at its center and through reruns it would remain 
an enduring pop culture force for decades. Uh, let me see. Oh. In 2006, a reporter with the Los Angeles Times caught up with Monty at the height of his career. He was among a group of African-American writers and directors who sparked an explosion of black culture. Uh, Skipping down, according to the L.A. Times, in 1977, Monty filed a lawsuit accusing ABC, CBS, producers Norman Lear and Bud Yorkin and others of stealing his ideas for Good Times, The Jeffersons, an All in the Family spinoff, as we heard and what's happening? I mentioned that yesterday. Eventually, he says he received a $1 million settlement and a small niggerish percentage of the residuals from good times. But opportunities to pitch new scripts dried up along with his money. Hmm. He lost the car, the four bedroom house he shared with his two daughters and almost all the trappings of his successful life. Monty was one of the few, if not the only black writers on good times. And he didn't stay for long. He was frustrated with the show's direction, which he felt leaned too heavily on stereotypes, racism, white supremacy, and an emphasis on Jimmy Walker's breakout character, JJ Evans, who was often reduced in Monty's view to shucking and jiving. Give you one more. Here's what, uh, Evan, or Mont, yes, Monty Evans says about tensions on the set of Good Times and the cast desire to discuss more deeply the show's portrayal of black people. It was extraneous to the needs of the show that had to be done every week. Oh, wait a minute. This is not. This is. Uh, make sure I give the whole cue. Uh, Evans wasn't the only one to voice his concerns about Lear writing on Good Times. The show's stars, Esther Roll, the late, and John Amos also pushed back. This comes up in the 2016 PBS documentary, Norman Lear, Just Another Version of You, in which Lear looks back on his career in hindsight. Here's, okay, so this was Norman Lear saying that when he was asked about the tensions to portray a more earnest depiction of black people, that it was extraneous to the needs of a show that had to be done every week. And I'll stop there. You can read the full article again. Chicago Tribune, uh, the complicated racist. Like they could have even done that racist question mark of Norman Lear and good times by Nina Metz, Chicago Tribune, December 6, 2023. You could even make it a counter racist exercise. Get your family now. Now, you know, so a white person is at the head of all of these shows. If you are a black parent and you watched any of these shows at any time or what have you sit down with your offspring. Hey, this is black culture, whatever. And you can put that in quotes and sit down and watch like two or three of these and see what they think. Especially if you have children who don't watch a lot of television and maybe have them write a report or they can tell you, y'all can talk about it or whatever, but have them use their brain computers. This is black culture. Even you could show them the episode of Sanford and son where they go. I think it's, they have a character, black male who comes in. He's a guest uh, character. He comes in and he tells Fred that, uh, I am Lamont's real son. You know, your late wife, uh, we fooled around and I'm really his dad where she's, what did you say? Nigga watch that up. This is black culture written by a white man. Anyway, 
Uh, let's see. I'll get in a few more, then we'll nab some of the folks who dialed in to have commentary to share. But again, Pamela Evans Harris, and even the comment or the the audio portions that they played, they didn't put the same clips that I would have picked. But that's to be understood. When they included Sammy Davis Jr., Neely Fuller Jr. has mentioned for years. Now you want to do all that talking about anti-Semitism? Sammy Davis Jr. is Jewish. What do you mean talking about all that black and everything? I'm Jewish. Why don't you do some of your, you know, he's an old anti-Semite bit. That old Archie Bond, you know? No? Yeah. Let's see. And they had my favorite word, bigoted, in there as well. Uh, Not racist, bigoted. They said it a few times. I also think it's racist, question mark. NPR, they have a number of hosts who do the news segment. Most of them are classified as white. They do have black people at NPR. Michelle Martin, uh, Michelle Norris. They have other black hosts at NPR. They do not have black male hosts do serious news. Eric Deggins is a black male. He is only there to talk about Scandal, Norman Lear, Real Housewives, TV. They do not have black journalists tell you about the news. That, I think, is significant. Uh, Let's see. Already said about the monuments, the word fair popped in there quite a few times. Uh, In fact, they mentioned uh, the monuments. The University of Pennsylvania came up in the segment on anti-Semitism. University of Pennsylvania could have came up in the monuments. Remember, we just talked about they had the remains of the black victims from Move Sioux Africa in Philadelphia, they had their remains up until very recently, along with skulls of lots of other non-white people from phrenology and all of that. But we just talked about it, so they could have been included in the monument portion as well. Uh, let's see. The In the segment on Madiba, the metaphor was used. The pillars of apartheid started to crumble metaphors I have no idea what that is the system of white supremacy is still in effect because now it is mostly white people in South Africa who have access to water black people who do not we even heard the poor white people in South Africa we were told this year even poor white people in South Africa some of them got slaves servants slaves same thing sending them really let's see the segment in New Zealand Uh, learn a little bit about the whole planet they've had the same treaty in place for 200 years now they say we want to get away from policies that give out help moochers on the basis of race are you flipping serious so and I find it even more tacky because I think the most common way that I see New Zealand discussed is the tacky tattoos that people get that's it. Not any assistance to these non-white people, victims of white supremacy, anything of that nature. Like, nap, nap, nap. And even the importance of them cutting out. We're not doing any more of this affirmative action dole over here in New Zealand either. Like, to do same time that they're talking about that here. Fascinating. Almost as though it's coordinated. They have a script of some sort. Let's see. Uh... I'll just, let's see, get in the last two, maybe. Get in the last two. They had the segment, 
the segment on opioids. They talked about the difference. They had privileged black male Kevin Hargrove said that he did martial arts and was taking painkillers. He'd broken lots of bones in his body and got addicted and all that. Now he's trying to get himself together to even get his life together, be more constructive. Victim, privileged black male, victim of white supremacy. And they talked about how for black people, it's more challenging for them to get access to buffenephrine and things that would help them. Chemicals, pills, services, resources that would help them uh, be able to eliminate their substance dependency. I don't need all this or these opioids and such. I don't need all these painkillers. I can get off of that. Get back to being a constructive person. Maybe help us replace white supremacy with justice. All of that one sobriety would be best. But all of that is discussed in the book that we talked about this summer. Whiteout. Full title. How racial capitalism changed the color of opioids in America. And they talked to the lead author of that book. Now I'll tell you how cool Gus T one of one context of white supremacy. I saw that Helena Hansen, who they spoke to cowbell was the lead author. I didn't want to talk to her. The other two authors, Jules Netherland and David Herzberg, they are white. I wanted to talk to them. We talked to David Hertzberg this summer. That's the white man. If you remember towards the end of the summer, he talked about being a so-called Jew. He was mistreated growing up, but accepted classified as a white person. Now we said, dang, it seems like this book is almost like, dang, I'm, I'm sympathized with white people that are picked on and the down and out white fella that's picked on like, cause he was picked on as he was growing up. We talked about that on the program. It even, I think Ivory said it kind of knocked, she was focused on other things and that became important. It was even this comparison about poor white people. Are they treated like black people? I thought that came out in the book, but we talked about all of this in detail over the summer. I don't even know if they gave the full title of her book when they spoke with Helena Hansen, but when they spoke to her, because I read this book, reading more important than watching television, I immediately went to, where did I highlight about Helena Hansen? She writes in the book, my coming of age was marked by race and by drugs. I was the product of my mother's short-lived marriage to a Norwegian man, Nordic white man, who returned to Norway without her after two years as a UC Berkeley student at the end of the 1960s. He was sowing his wild oats. Maybe. Uh, Although I knew that the one drop rule written into U.S. law a century ago and still an American cultural practice defined me as black, I was also aware from an early age that whiteness with a capital W is relative. My mother lied about our address to get me into a predominantly white, high-performing public primary school outside of our residential district. I saw my teachers bristle when my dark-skinned mother attended parent-teacher night a dark fleck against a sea of white parents metaphor my teachers relaxed around my less threatening light brown freckled face and the perfect grammar that my mother taught me I learned to weave my way in and out of places that were too white 
for my web, my mother and to participate in white conversations playing up my ties to Norway Nordic, with the white girls who studied magazine photos of royal European families at recess through high school I covered myself in loose clothing and rejected cigarettes alcohol and drugs in fear that I'd be mistaken for the drug and sex crazed mulatto whore of American movies in my mind my absent image along with the grammar of my speech my abstinent image along with my grammar along with the grammar of my speech provided a measure of whiteness that could protect me against racial violence I had learned what a liability drugs were if you were black I knew that drugs could blacken you if you were not fully white but that if you were white drugs were the marker and the benefit of your whiteness I will stop there if you recall David Hertzberg the reason that I knew that is because they all give details about their background before they get to all of this about opioids and racism and all that and even the poor white people in the book so you get all of this and since she's the lead author this is right at the beginning very first chapter of the book but that's what I remember when I heard her like oh yeah don't want to be a drug and sex crazed mulatto whore eee eee and you know what <clears throat> you can have perfect grammar be sober for your entire life and racists will still think of you us as drug and sex crazed nigra mulatta whores just saying anyway but the book does have lots of interesting tidbits and we did speak to the co-author this summer uh, let's see the only last one I'll just get in Gerald Byers the first black prosecutor that they've had in New Mexico you had a white man in Ohio threaten to lynch the first black prosecutor in this county of maybe not the whole state of New Mexico but at least in this county of New Mexico Mr. Gerald Byers I'm going to put a noose around your neck around this I don't even know police shooting incident in New Mexico like what I don't even know what to say man go Buckeyes uh, what does it mean to be white it's been so many public officials threatened with lynchings and what have you since the pandemic started they've done lots of reports about that if you are a public office holder what have you that might be something to talk about it's very likely that there's going to be some sort of targeted racial violence regardless of you know what you do lots of this all over the world really number again 605 313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate I am curious if we have uh, attempted parents if you have spoken with your offspring about I don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be the report that we heard today right about Instagram and all the child rapists there and such but 
man, uh, have you had a conversation not just about sexual abuse in general, but about the massive online dangers, specifically targeting children? Really, everyone, you know, needs to be mindful, but particularly targeting children, males and females, boys and girls. Have you spoken with your children? Do you have any tips uh, that might be helpful for other attempted non-white parents uh, to broach these subjects in an age-appropriate manner or uh, just any, any resources that might be helpful? That would be great, but I do think this is something like, oh yeah, with as much time as we spend on screens and online and all the rest of it, make sure you are informed as an attempted parent and then make sure and informed means checking on what your offspring are doing and then talking to your children. So if we have attempted parents, if you've had those discussions, what do they sound like? Do you have any suggestions? That would be super appreciated. 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let's see. Nav folks who dial in. Moment to get to the switchboard and we will nav folks who dialed in. You know what I did with the tab. Let's see. Oh, there we go. Right on. Folks who dialed in, star six one. Let's see. Got it together. Uh, let's see, folks are spectating or getting their thoughts together, whichever it is. Give some time to uh, see if they have a thought to share. If we have parents, you should not be spectating because I am, like I said, I do not have offspring, so I'm not really, you know, qualified expert at all to give any tips on what to say, what not to say with offspring if, you know, about the social media thing. I can only encourage sharing some of these reports. If you have uh, teenage boys, I, I do have some experience at least being a teenage boy at one time. Uh, and they, you know, might be feeling kind of macho and I'm almost grown again. I'm not scared and blah, blah, blah. I would make sure show them some of those reports where particularly teen boys are being targeted with these online scams. Show them that this is not some, oh, you don't, you know, they're only doing this to female and I'm grown. I can even mind that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure lots of these folks who are already victims said the same thing. Uh, and it, it might be, how do you know? It could be end up being some grown 30 year old person or what have you. Show them the report where the uh, enforcement officer in Virginia, he had done the same thing. He tricked, this was a teenage uh, female tricked her she thought she was talking to a teenage boy he came all the way across the country killed her family set the residence on fire and kidnapped her she and I, she was 15 this wasn't some young you know easily gullible person or whatever she was 15 years old show them some of these report really every time that they pop up i would be grabbing these reports making sure that we discuss this this is why you don't have a smartphone you can get them the dumb phone like I said so you can be in contact or whatever all that stuff but this is why waiting to allow you to have a computer in your room this is why all of that 
it is so dangerous. Just the system of white supremacy period is so dangerous. And then all the newfangled technology and what have you, they don't even like it. They don't even have safeguards. They can sit there and say, well, we don't want to mess up the algorithm. And at the end, and white people don't care about children. All of this stuff was a major problem. The Catholic church and the boy scouts, all of this was a major problem way before Instagram and Facebook and all these technologies existed. So take it seriously, at least in my view, take it seriously. And if you're attempted parents talk about these issues before you have the children that way you can have a plan together and talk to other parents, you know, see what, what's been difficult. You know, when did you give the, your, your child a phone? What age? Like, Oh, okay. You gave a phone a 10. How did that work out? Do you, do you have any regrets about that? No. Yes. See what they say. Ask them and ask lots of questions. See what they, if you have other family members, talk to them, you talk to your parents. Like what age did you, what do you think? What, 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 what would you, yay, nay, try to get as much input on that so that that's not something that you're just kind of aimlessly mindlessly going into and then what is that when you play around with sex the joke is on the you do not want that joke some social media nightmare you do not want that joke to be on your offspring let's see uh they one parent, Bay Area mom, other parents, no spectating. If you have had this conversation, I know we do have some people who have younger children. So, you know, hopefully you've already had started this discussion. So by the time they get to this age, bam, we are all set. But other parents, let us know. Bay Area mom should be with us. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Greetings to you all. Um, so yeah, I have, I have two children and, um, one, uh, that the first one, my daughter, she had a cell phone. She, okay, so we had social media. It was, there was, it was my face with her and YouTube. So she wasn't really, she did have a MySpace page, but she couldn't have one until she was 17. And then her dad fussed about that. And um, as far as people on the social media, there would be people on my space, but I would monitor her space. So it was our space. So it was like, boys, it would just be people from her school that would speak on her social media. And if it was something that I didn't like, I would say something or interject. or It, it depends. But I was very active on her space. And um, cell phones. So in high school, uh, I'd say 10th grade, her dad got her a cell phone. And it wasn't, it didn't have uh, the internet. It was just a regular phone. So uh, that that was bad. And it wasn't, you, you couldn't, it was limited because, you know, in those times, I think it, you had to pay. It was a certain time a time that you could talk for free. It wasn't unlimited like it is now. So maybe after five or something, it was free. And then the calls could even be monitored. But with my son, he 
they he was introduced. I guess the internet made middles. I'll say I'd like to say eleven years old, something like that. And um, it was just interesting to him. And then as far as social media, you. What is that? Facebook. The Facebook was kind of geared towards older people. And then um, with him and Instagram, I think he may have did more in, in activity on Twitter. And then he kind of gravitated to Instagram. He had Facebook, but he didn't use it as much. So he wasn't really into social media. And I didn't let him have a phone <laughs> like that. He didn't get a phone until high school, and if you needed to call me or something, you could call the office phone, and then I got him a little phone that didn't have the Internet on it for emergencies. He didn't like it, but I didn't care. And then by the time he got into 10th grade, he got a phone, a regular phone, and he did like the Internet. I don't know what he would do on there, but he did... uh, like the internet, but he wasn't more, he wasn't into the social media. And I usually kind of kept him engaged in other things to where he didn't have to uh, get lost in the internet, so to speak. Uh, cause, because sometimes when they don't have anything to do, they'll go to that. Or if you give them tasks on the internet, because he had tablets and stuff and it had the internet. But he always had something to do, so he he just didn't spend so much time in one place, even with the video games, just not so much time. So I wasn't worried about him um, getting harmed on the Internet because he didn't spend time there. And even on Twitter, I'd be on there, and that was more for high school, and I just let him know, hey, you can't say certain things because they, they – like this is recorded. Once it once it hits, once you hit send, it's out there permanently, and you, you can maybe erase it. But there's always a hard copy of it out there. And then ten years later, they'll bring it up, um, something that you said. And so always make sure you don't say anything that you don't mind um, staying in the air forever. So I would always have to tell them that, and um. So that that's my um, spill on the internet and social media. Uh, mine didn't uh, get too caught up in it. Um, I like the clip about the guy, the uh, Sanford and Son guy. Uh, the, well, not the Sanford and Son guy, but the uh, Ku Klux Klan, the ex Ku Klux Klan. Remember that uh, he was a closet Sanford and Son and um, uh, Jefferson Watcher, and how. Just how um, disrespectful and degrading, you know, a lot of the skits were. And then for people that he was not the only closet watcher. And then, you know, they had uh, white um, writers and directors as well. So just the kind of things that they put out there just for white people to watch or secretly watch just to be entertained. And just just to now how they have these kind of um, programs. And then to think that how everybody's all, everybody's taught, you know, hey, don't 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 watch that, don't do that, don't 
everybody knows to be anti-black, so you have to sneak if you want to laugh because it's so funny to make fun of us and watch us make fun of each other. Um, and they don't have to say the stuff because we're saying it to each other. So you just turn it on and if it's still airing five days a week, it just shows that they want to make sure that that is embedded in either our heads and then others' heads to think this is how we are. We always like this. This is how, this is our making jokes against each other is a part of the family. That's how, I know my daughter had told me, because I, I think I said that her dad didn't like me. That's what I said. And she said, um, no, it's not that. That's just how we show love in our family. This is her, though. This is my child. We just, this is how we just, you know, talk stuff on you. So, oh, that's, that's interesting. So, um, I'll mute my line and, uh, thank you for taking my call. That's black love. Like, uh, that matter of fact, when we read, uh, Dr. Layla Africa, Nutricide, formerly worst book I've ever read. Uh, he name calls black people. That's one of the reasons that I, you know, was really repulsed by that text. But he name calls black people. He ca- he called Whitney Houston a nutritional Uncle Tom. And uh, we had a person they called in and said the same thing, Uncle Tom. That is a term of endearment. Like I'm really that's just a part of the Negro culture and how we show our brothers and sisters that we love and admire their work and think better of them in fact that's man I have to get my yoga breath (laughs) I cannot be so 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 the name calling when you call me a coon and all the rest that's really you you love me that's (laughs) that's what they say as they said the the name that's black culture see that's 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 the negro essence see is when whew, man mm, mm, mm. pitiful worthy of great pity uh and that was uh Johnny Lee Clary the former clansman he was a guest on the cows uh in 2009 way back when uh the late Johnny Lee Clary guest on the cows way back in 2009 saying that they had rules in the clan and you can't support black business uh, which includes you're not supposed to be watching negro television so he would have to sneak and watch Sanford's son and good times and all the old negro humor which I don't know I find that kind of I don't even make of that what you want like I think it's a long history of racists loving negro entertainment got to sneak off to the slave quarters and watch Negro Jim play the fiddle and the banjo and, you know, do some dancing. And I mean, anyway, much obliged for the commentary, uh, about the phone. Um, we got two different examples, right? And I said, you know, you can also judge by, uh, maturity, Bay area scholar, maybe you can handle the phone. Uh, at an earlier age or that sort of thing, depending on, you know, what sort of activities. And I know he went to Brazil as a teen. So yeah, maybe, maybe you need a phone. (laughs) You're going to do all that. But I mean, I don't know. You would have to see, you can, 
you are a parent, you know your child's maturity or what have you. I think what they said, they didn't even put a hard number on it. They said, wait as long as possible. Even if they get upset about it, I want an iPhone. I already got it picked out and everything. You can't give me this lame, dumb phone and all that. And I'm, oh, I hate mom. And that's okay. Children do. And again, that's why so that they have a better understanding you can even tell them your brain isn't fully developed it's easy for adult predators to take advantage or it's easier your brain is not fully developed you don't make the best decisions yet this is one I'm going to keep showing you these articles this is why this is not abstract fear this is oh man clear and present danger white people do not care about children number again 605-313-5164 decode 564-943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate Uh, the segment about the sugar tax uh, that they're questioning maybe we should have this maybe it should be something that's had globally across the country uh, I am in Seattle they do have a sugar tax in Seattle and it's been uh, in effect here I think since like 2017 or so now I remember when this first started they some people questioned and they said I don't know if this is going to have a big impact uh, because people can just go to some of the surrounding areas uh, and where they do not because it's not throughout the state of Washington so they can just go to some of the you know outlying areas right beyond the city limits and purchase all your you know sugary sodas and whatever else and you can avoid the tax which would be easy to do uh, now they do have this is from the University of Washington School of Public Health uh, this was published earlier this year Seattle's sugar sweetened beverage tax results in improved public health outcomes A new study has determined that Seattle's sugar-sweetened beverage tax has had numerous positive impacts since going into effect in 2018. I think it was voted in 2017. A team of researchers from Public Health, Seattle and King County, the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Health Research Institute recently completed a multifaceted evaluation of the tax's effect on public health outcomes and economic impact. And they go into the details I can share so you can read more. But they said it's been effective. Uh, You heard they said the same thing in the report that I played from First Post, which is uh, an Indian news outlet. No sugary beverage. I know we've had a number of cows listeners uh, who talked about we live in the system of white supremacy racism, which is an obesogenic environment. Delectable Negro. They give us horrible food, stress everything to have us in poor health uh, make it difficult for us to obtain healthy nourishing foods that would replenish us that have not been filled with poisons and all the plastic and all the rest of it uh, one thing that we can do it is such you know a chore for most of us to just get water talked about that many many times over in fact uh, just no non-water beverages that right there would do so much uh, not alcohol uh, not stopping at Starbucks for all of their sugary caffeinated beverages and such 
uh, really sticking to water. Like I said, hey, I said caffeine. I do unsweetened tea. That is all. Very easy to do. Home, anywhere, really. House, I'll say, but very easy. Nothing difficult. That is about as rowdy as it gets. Water. That's in particularly for those of us, if you have any sort of weight problem, anything, you want to lose uh, some weight, make sure that you're a little bit healthier, feeling a little bit better, both maybe. Water. That is, you do not want those empty calories and all that sugar. It's bad for your teeth and obesogenic environment. All the, we just had World Diabetes Day, which I'd never heard of until uh, this year. Do everything that you can. That's an easy one. Just eliminate all those sugary beverages from your diet. And that's another one. If you have children, see if you can avoid even starting them on all it, because that is addictive. I mean, that's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's just as bad as the cigarettes. Uh, it's so addictive, bad for your teeth, develops bad habits around what you associate beverages and thirst with. Water, water. You want to be drinking water, lots of it, like maybe. You get something non-water on occasion, what have you, but what you're drinking every day, the bulk of the day is water. Definitely need that. And they even talked about that, that they said there are apparently health benefits uh, for the people who would need it the most, the non-white people uh, with the so-called sugar tax. Uh, I know for myself, because I don't purchase. I think I mentioned it briefly. It's been in effect for five years, but it really doesn't have an impact on me because I don't purchase sugary beverages. But I think it's been in effect for uh, five years uh, here. And if that is the case, well, then Bravo. I know they've had resistance to them putting that in place in other uh, areas of the U.S. I don't know about the world, but I know in other parts of the U.S. they've been resistant. I would put the alcohol tax for sure. Sobriety would be best and the first thing that I thought about with that if they added any sort of tax that made it more expensive I suspect that would greatly impact children who would have less money to spend that might make it harder for them to get lots of alcohol make it even pricier then they might have to pay someone to go with that 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 might reduce the amount of children drinking alcohol like I would be all for that. I don't know what the reason, particularly since they had so much data about the increase in alcohol consumption here in the U.S. And I think that was across the so-called country. Dramatic increase in alcohol consumption. So and they said, hey, anything over one drink per week is not healthy. Sobriety would be best. I would be all for that. I cannot imagine white people supporting that in mass. Just the NFL alone, all of the liquor sponsorship and everything else. Like I cannot imagine uh, them going for this, but sobriety would be best. That would be my humble opinion anyway, but they do have uh, lots of reports on that, whether or not the sugar tax would be effective. I also thought the report double check on uh, make sure I didn't miss folks. Uh, the report where they talked about the racism that black patients expect to encounter when they go to the hospital I'm so glad we read medical apart now that's another one we didn't even factor in swango but they used the metaphor that you gotta tense up like you're going on the job and you might about to be get fired or 
they're going to give you a good tongue lashing because you messed up something or were late for work or whatever else like what why should I be feeling like that when I go oh they said the same thing they said I gotta put my best Sunday clothes on and all that like ooh let me get my shoes spit polished and get my shirt button make sure my fly zipped up okay get my set at this late date nigh on 2025 I love that word nigh oh it's one of my favorites nigh on 2025 it does not matter if you have on your Sunday best you could take five showers before you go to man they have Negro doctors I'm not just in my Sunday best I got a white lab coat on and you're practicing racism against me let me see if my memory is accurate remember Dr. Sylvia Coleman doc like medical doctor black female she said that they were rude and nasty to her at the hospital when she had COVID-19 and she died I don't think the problem was that she was not she went in there ragged lame pants were sagging wore some cast off clothes that she got from a secondhand store I don't remember them saying that about I'm going to have to make sure that I got her name accurate let's see the other folks who dialed in if you have commentary let me make sure I got the correct name of the black I do remember it was a black female doctor I'm just making sure it was Dr. Sylvia Coleman but they didn't say nothing about her having ragged and tattered garments on and if she had been she had got a Louis Vuitton blazer or something man they would have hooked her up and got her the best medical treatment you can imagine other folks who dialed in with a hand up Yeah, I'll be heard. Our caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, I, I noticed that part as well on the beginning or toward the beginning segment. I think it was about the, uh, the Norman Lear guy and how I noticed the the language that was used in describing I think it was the two shows, um, All in the Family and the Jeffersons, and saying that they used the term anti-hero, and <laughs> they said that both of the leading male uh, protagonists, or it might not have been a word protagonist, or uh, characters were bigoted and sexist, like trying to imply that black people can practice racism. So I thought about that one and um, the segment where the three the three female presidents, I guess from the, the three different colleges, I noticed that they were trying to, at the beginning of the week, try and set the focus on the, the black female the most, but then later on in the week, they put the, the <laughs> they, they put the white woman back on focus and I noticed on that audio segment the way that she was questioning just all of them it was just like unprofessional and she kept over talking and I just think once again if that was somebody that's classified as black and questioning some white people like that I you know I think she would have been criticized and scrutinized probably maybe suspended or something (laughs) 
the way that she she just kept she wouldn't let the person finish the response. Like, you know, what's the context? And well, how can you say this? And well, it has to cross over into conduct and things like that. Because when it comes to when black people are mistreated, they white supremacists will use that um, that I don't know narrative or that point of saying that. Well, you know, it's, it's it's protected speech, or it's the First Amendment, and uh, you know, you have to really stop being so sensitive. And all these kind of responses that Black people receive, uh, and then things like the Anders Breivik. I know that wasn't here in uh, this area of the world, but um, he committed. And that of killing so many people, maybe like 60 or 70 or something like that. And when white people do things like that, I don't see, you, you know, of course, they're not going to have that same energy and that same response. But, yeah, that that was an interesting segment, how she wasn't really allowing the responses to come through, like how they were allowing her to speak. Like, I noticed that as well. They were calm speaking into the microphone, but I think her name is Elise Stefanik or something like that, a New York congresswoman. So I was seeing that on the, the news reports earlier in the week. I'm like, she's just being totally rude, talking over and not having a conversation. So um, that, that was another one I wanted to uh, speak on. And I had a news story that was uh, reported here today, actually, um, where it looks like a tragic arrangement, a white man and, and uh, what's, I guess, what we call an Asian female were arrested. The white man is named Dustin Huff, 35 years old, and the non-white female name is Yeroy Z, and she's 21. So that's a kind of a major con- uh, contrast, age contrast. And they were arrested for for uh, child abuse, two counts of aggravated child abuse, and one count of child neglect. And the white man lied about having a child, a six-year-old child in a cage. They described it as a cage where they later on called it a makeshift cage that was in the house when the officers came in there and uh, they ended up arresting them. Uh, it's described as, let's see, they described it as a bed frame or something like that. It says Huff told officers that his child does not sleep in the cage and referred to the enclosure as a bed frame Huff then offered to let officers see it. Officers say the bed frame was a large, unsanded wooden enclosure that appeared to be a makeshift cage. And then they said they found a second makeshift cage. Officers say they discovered a second makeshift cage in the closet of the master bedroom used for a second child of the couple. They say both enclosures have rails and springs that could cause harm to the kids if they moved into their enclosures. Both Z and Huff 
are being held at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office for $600,000 bond. And that's the story i like to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Wow. Uh, white people do not care about uh, children. I think I've said that a few times. Uh, even today, I've said it a few times. Much obliged for sharing. Um, hmm. Man, that is... Uh, mm. Much obliged for highlighting the age disparity between those two as well. The white man, Dustin Huff at 35 and Yuri G at 21. I don't know exactly how long they have been in this uh, tragic arrangement, but man, that, uh, hey, same thing I just said about your old noggin. Her brain computer is not fully developed. Anyway, um, ah, oh, that is so disgraceful. That's so, man, ah, that's so disgraceful. Homemade cage, man. What does it mean to be white? Anyway, uh, that word bigoted, one of my favorites, uh, as well, when they were talking about the, uh, Norman Lear and that whole, uh, segment, I had totally neglected the report. I did play it on what happened in Congress this week, all of the anti- Semitism, uh, where at the beginning he said the beginning of the week he felt there was much more focus on Dr. Claudine Gay, black female in Harvard. I said, Oh my God, it's disgraceful, and oh, she should resign. And they did, 74 members of Congress, including uh, Stefanik, I think that's how you say her name, Elise Stefanik, a representative in New York. Uh, they signed 74 members of Congress, might even be all white, signed a letter asking all three. Uh, of these folks, Claudine Gay, Sally Cornbluth, and Elizabeth McGill to resign as a result of their commentary. And I thought the same thing. Uh, If you watch, it was so content, like he said, talking over and demanding. Like, I don't want to hear all that. Give me a yes or a no. And she said, well, you know, context, my word. Well, you know, context. I don't want to hear all that. That's half a little more. Is it? Yes. I was like, dang, if I talk to somebody like that on the program, they would just see that's exactly what I've said about that. No count. Gus. He sits up there and he is better. And I hit the mute button. Ask my question. Let them respond. No, I don't want to hear nothing. And I'm going to demand you're going to give me a yes or no answer right now. And then I get upset with the answers and demand that you resign. Like, wow. Same that I could not imagine if Cynthia McKinney, six-term member of Congress, if she had got up there and been talking to somebody like, man, come on, come or much less old obesers. John Lewis put some old privileged black male up there and you're going to be yelling. Jesse Jackson Jr. You're going to be yelling at some white person and an Ivy League president, no less. I also thought it was so lame. I thought this was way like I can't even quantify uh, worse than what happened with Kanye West, where they had Dr. Claudine Gay, black female. She had to come out and do all these apologies and, oh, we've lost faith in you and all the like. Are you serious? 
that has been like for decades on college campuses. That's how they had that dude. I forgot his name. Remember, he was he was down in Florida. He was going out doing speeches, and they had to get uh, security for him. He was a white nationalist. He said he uh, this was like 2017, right same time that Trump was elected. He came and he did a speech down in Florida, and they had to uh, get security for him. I'll get his I'll remember his name in a second, hopefully. But they uh, the colleges allowed him to come and speak across the country and he was promoting white supremacy racism although he used the term white nationalism but free speech exchange of ideas that's what they've promoted on college campuses forever in allowing all kinds of people to speak that's always what they have said why is that now 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 they're supposed to be punishment and you give me i don't want to hear no nuance and context you give me a yes or no like and like I said, I felt so bad for her, Dr. Uh, Claudine Gay, victim of white supremacy. She had to go out and apologize. And I'm so sorry. And we don't tolerate like, are you serious? Are you serious? If there was any sort of problem and anybody classified as white was being harmed, I do not think they would need to go find Claudine Gay, Dr. Claudine Gay, to get that problem solved. Especially if they get to Harvard. Like, are you serious? Anyway, uh, much obliged, good sir. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, you have commentary to share. Don't wait till the last minute. Hello. Black female caller. Yes, ma'am. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I hope everyone's having the best evening they can. Um, I guess just a couple of things. Norman Lear was described as a visionary for watching shows in England and copying them. Um, I guess I'm a visionary. I've watched things and copied them, too. So, yay, me, visionary. Um, and with the sugar and stuff, I don't know how well that will go over, um, how pe- how well it will be received, excuse me, here in the South, home of sweet tea, but I do think it's a good idea. I remember um, in 2000, I think it was 2008, yeah, when everything all of a sudden started skyrocketing, gas was $4 and you know, everything was horrible. And I admit, I used, well, I'm, I did. I used to buy candy when I would go to the supermarket. So it was 50 cents right there. And it went up, I think, to 59 cents. I don't know, something small. I said, uh-uh, it's supposed to be 50 cents. And I don't, that was 2008, 2023. I look, if it's on sale, sale, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's ever going to go back to 50 cents. Sometimes they might have a clearance kind. I just look and go, mm, used to be me. Um, again, you know, that hasn't affected everything, but I know that affected me. <laughs> um, I don't buy a lot, just a lot of candy like that. Um, I don't buy a lot of, I just don't buy a lot of candy at all. Um, I just don't. Um, and I know with me, I guess being a counting background, I look for sales tax all the time. I go to my father's house. When I go there, I I will try to stock up on, you know, non-perishable or even some sales from coming back home, perishable items. But there's no sales tax on the food. I know there when you have to prepare food, like restaurants, I believe the sales tax is higher. You know, the sales tax is higher than on, like, paper towels and stuff. I don't know. I'm very big on that. So that would affect me. Now that um, it's just me, I'm doing better when it comes to the sugary 
drinks and things like that. But, yeah, I know that would affect me, and I would just like, oh, well, you know, if I want if I want sweet tea, I guess I have to make it myself. I have to buy the sugar, the tea, and all of that. Or, like you said, just try to drink it unsweetened. I know some of the flavored teas, they taste pretty good without sugar, so I mean, I'll probably maybe try to start drinking some more of those other flavors without the sugar because those taste pretty good. But, yeah, that was that would affect me. So I'm planning, I guess I'm planning to be a visionary that drinks less sugary sweets. Thank you. I love it. Love it. She, she said nine cent. That is not breaking the bank. She is gainfully employed, participates on workplace racism. So it's not like nine cents is going to send her to the poorhouse. but just nine cent was enough. Like, whoop, whoop, whoop. That that's just supposed to be fifty cent. Nope, nope, I'm good. That is reason enough. Yes. Let's do the sugar tax. If that is just nine cent, we're not even talking it has to be astronomical. Just a dime. Great. Great. Maybe maybe we could even go really wild and do fifteen cents to really decrease that because they have so much of it. Like it's Twinkies and Ho Ho's and ice cream and snicker bars and all I mean they just have sugar 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 every and I didn't even get to the drinks man I didn't even get to the drinks they got all of that like it's just it's bombard and it's Christmas time now so they got the candy canes and the eggnog and the cakes and the cobblers and the cut it's sugar 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 cut all that out like man that is uh that is an easy one. Just the sugar drinks. We'll get to the pies and cobblers and all that later. But the sugary drinks. Let's see if we can cut that. And particularly for young people. That's why I say with the TV. That is another angle that maybe should be greater emphasis. So much of the television programs that are targeting children in a predatory manner. It's McDonald's and Soda Pop and uh captain crunch and all that sugary cereal we didn't get to that either uh but it's that's a lot of it it's bad food with lots of sugar at in it uh to get you addicted and hooked on that from like four three two wherever and then they have all that on youtube too so that's woven into whatever it is that they're watching and even sometimes they sponsor i think it was irie where she was talking about um sesame street and pbs yeah sesame street specifically and the connection to McDonald's. And I went and looked in their corporate sponsor of Sesame Street. They were for a number of years. I don't think they still are, at least not publicly. But the influence is right there uh, to start from a young age to get you addicted to bad food that is going to erode your health and have you, you know, hoping and praying that Dr. Swango does right by you or a loved one. Let's do as much as we can. Bam, circumvent that. Like, nope, nope. Leave that candy alone. No way leave those soda pops kool-aid anything else really even the fruit juice i said that i think retired firefighter was talking about the program with the young people and they would bring in uh fruit juices and even that because it's got so much sugar uh if you turn and look at the label like if it's a just a typical like apple juice grape juice orange it's gonna have so much you like unless you are making it fresh it's gonna have all that fiber in it you're gonna have like a smoothie something like that unless it's gonna be that 
it's going to have a lot of sugar in it. Water. That is what we... Water. Water. The vast majority of us, we do not drink enough water. We get way too much sugar. Really, you have to. I mean, Salma, you have to be deliberate about that because that we're talking about all the obvious sweet items. We're not even talking about all the other food items that also have sugar in them. Although it's not a sweet product like spaghetti sauce and things of that nature, cornbread. How many blacks she talked about in the South? Like, oh my God, yes, I was born in the South. I lived in Georgia. Yes, where you put sugar in everything, the greens, cornbread. Like, oh my God, you have to be deliberate, conscious. We're not going to consume particularly all that's white sugar. That is a may or should be a major part of white supremacy racism. Uh, again, Henry in Chicago told us his wife went on her uh, purge of white sugar after she began to have a better understanding of the connection between white sugar, sugar cane and white supremacy racism and the I mean, you want to talk about torture and terrorism. That's all in the half has never been told. Catherine Massey Book Club. Anyway, uh, any other thoughts folks need to get in before we wrap up? Anything they missed? Yes, ma'am. Say something. Is that Bay Area, Mom? Yes, yes. yes. ma'am. So, remember, I would speak about the little boy that I have for respite, and um, he eats a lot of the, uh, you know, he looks, he's, based on junk food. So I was there last week, and I noticed the last time I was there as well, he he has his dad's cell phone. He's allowed to have access to a cell, anything that will give him um, video access, preferably a cell phone because it's handheld. And he goes right in the pantry watching his videos, his repetitious videos, of, uh, and um, he's eating this, whatever his preferred snack sitting on the, um, a ladder, you know, the step ladder. He's sitting on the step ladder, maybe a three-foot uh, step ladder, sitting at the pantry at the level of the preferred snack that he's eating. Say if it's the Oreos, he's just eating out of the Oreos. If it's the, uh, um, what are those, um, uh, those Cinnamon Toast Crunch, he's just eating out of the bag of Cinnamon Toast Crunch. If it's the Doritos, uh, Cool Ranch, Nacho Cheese flavor, he's sitting in the pantry um, on the ladder watching the uh, video, the YouTube video, over and over, eating the snack. So it does program the children uh, to eat unhealthy snacks because they're watching whatever over and over. And either if it's a commercial that goes to the, um, the, the, the treat or whatever it is, however it's uh, introduced to them and they're watching it over and over, they're, they're encouraged to eat uh these treats, especially if they have access to it like him. Because when grandma, when the grandma said, well, what was he? Because I ran, she asked, she said, so-and-so, what are you doing? And then I got up to go see what he was doing. She's like, well, why do you get up? I said, well, he must be doing something if you ask him what he's doing. Girl, I wouldn't have got up. So I went in there. So, of course, he's hanging himself. But um, as he's watching the video in the closet eating his treats, with the belt. So she's like, well, what is he, what is he doing? And I just, you know, did a demonstration with my hand of a rope, a belt choking. Cause I had the belt in my hand. And then she just, mm, 
I don't know why he goes in there and eats like, like that. So I just, that's all I wanted to say is uh, that's exactly correct what you stated. I'll mute myself. Thank you. I do remember the cookie monster. Yes. Yes. Um, you, you hear everything she mentioned? She even got the Captain Crunch. And I said, I forgot. We didn't get the cereal aisle, man. We didn't get the Frosted Flakes, man. The Honey Smacks, the Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Come on. Rice Krispie Treats. Oh, my gosh. Kill some Rice Krispie Treats. But they get you from the young age and just eating nonsense all day long. And all that sugar diabetes, hypertension, all of that. None of that is nourishing your body or your brain computer. That's just empty calories and poison and yellow number five. And oh my God, that is the way. Not just one or two. Eat as many as you want all day. <laughs> That's, that is exactly just nom, 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 nom. And that's tons of us. That's why I said that if you are not going to be serious this is the environment it's designed do you think he's going to you know all of a sudden when he hits 6 you know what the cinnamon toast crunch isn't where it's at I'm on the road I'm cruising for an amputation I'm going to get me some kale chips get me some quinoa sweet potatoes change my health game you think that's going to magically happen six seven eight maybe he'll stumble on some youtube channels talk about healthy eating for elementary school children maybe maybe i doubt it i mean i guess he could stumble they got all kinds of content online social media and such but i mean really that right there and that a lot of that starts like i said not giving them the phone television all those screens and such and then why do we have oreos in the house why do we have doritos what do we eat like really it can't just be that we got these doritos and oreo cookies for you know junior to eat as many as like are we from time to time also going and get five twelve oreo cookies bag of doritos like come on come on children raising children we've said that before that's another like man you play around with sex now ha 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 how funny is that you're 14 years old and you weigh 220 pounds ha 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 and pre-diabetic ha 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 that's so funny play around with sex take it super serious uh, so we should be here I think every day doing our part so-called holiday season uh, Tuesday with one of these might be irregular time but you know I'll announce social media at until justice on Facebook and such you can let us know if you think there are better more effective ways to alert people when the context of white supremacy will be broadcasting uh, but all normal times I'm overjoyed for Tuesday we will get to talk about lynching of privileged black males and racist jokes Wednesday for the folks who are into it be so nice because we'll go back to back Wednesday J. Marion Sims white supremacy racism the history of gynecology in this part of the world or really global to some degree and then Thursday 
Michael Swango all done if you've been following along in the book you have final thoughts I have so enjoyed this book I have learned so much once again if you you know work in a medical setting healthcare setting uh, if you have to go to the hospital or what have you you should know I loved it this music to my ears one of our listeners in the book club she said man I was going to a company victims of racism to the hospital brilliant just keep an eye out ask questions do my part see if I can keep them safe he says, doctor came in. I said, hey, do you know who Michael Swango is? He said, no, Michael Swango? Michael Swango, who is that? Love it, because they might even know Michael. They're like, what? How does this nigga woman know Michael? I said, Jesus Christ, had my syringe already. Let me get back. And then they got, oh, she wasn't even supposed to know about no Michael. So who knows? If you are healthy, that can be one. Encourage folks. If you're sick, go to. That's what I said. If you got to be all gussied up and everything to go to the doctor, eh, you want to get someone who is healthy, alert. Just stay awake, man. Don't fall asleep. Don't nap here. And then look, see if there's any questions. He pulls a syringe out of his back pocket or soccer. <laughs> Ask lots of questions. Don't leave the room ask enough questions until you feel safe about things and then don't fall asleep if you have questions commentary until justice at gmail.com hopefully worthy of your Saturday evening invest if you think the cows is constructive listener supported counter racist radio hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot.com paypal button in the top right corner you'll see the links for cash app venmo paypal all linked beneath enormous gratitude to all the listeners who have kept us on the air for if we get to february 15 years hopefully we have not wasted a decade and a half uh, you can hit the amazon wish list as well under gus t renegade had problems with my mail white people most to blame for that but I think that might have been rectified I will check and report back at the top of the week sobriety cannot say that enough given what we heard about Kevin Hargrove and his painkiller opioid struggles he could have died privileged black male they got lots of I read about that in detail not just in whiteout but lots of reports the growing number of black opioid deaths and addictions and their lack of access to treatment heard all that before sobriety would be best creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person, it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. It was Dr. Susan Moore. Make sure I get that. Not Dr. Sylvia Coleman. Dr. Susan Moore who was not in tattered rags with patches and hand-me-down clothes and shoes with holes in them. It was Dr. Susan Moore who said, dang, I think I might have COVID and they're practicing racism against me in the hospital. And she died. 
And then after she died, they didn't even then come and say, she had on those raggedy clothes and I just couldn't stand the sight of her. That's not what they said. Said, you know, she was kind of uppity and rude. That's what they said. No name calling, no gossiping, no throwaway offspring. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.